This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Mark Nelson for LibriVox. It runs 1 hour 26 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1 A Drum Begins Peril hides in the house of Arambaksh. The speaker's voice quivered with earnestness, and his lean, black-nailed fingers clawed at Conan's mightily muscled arm as he croaked his warning. He was a wiry, sunburned man with a straggling black beard, and his ragged garments proclaimed him a nomad. He looked smaller and meaner than ever in contrast to the giant Cimmerian with his black brows, broad chest, and powerful limbs. They stood in a corner of the sword-maker's bazaar and on either side of them flowed past the many-tongued, many-colored stream of the Zambula streets, which is exotic, hybrid, flamboyant, and clamorous. Conan pulled his eyes back from following a bold-eyed, red-lipped Ganara, whose short skirt bared her brown thigh at each insolent step, and frowned down at his importunate companion. "'What do you mean by peril?' he demanded. The desert man glanced furtively over his shoulder before replying, and lowered his voice. "'Who can say? But desert men and travelers have slept in the house of Arambaksh, and never been seen or heard of again. What became of them? He swore they rose and went their way, and it is true that no citizen of the city has ever disappeared from his house. But no one saw the travelers again.' and men say that goods and equipment recognized as theirs have been seen in the bazaars. If Aram did not sell them, after doing away with their owners, how came they here?' "'I have no goods,' growled the Sumerian, touching the chagrin-bound hilt of the broadsword that hung at his hip. "'I have even sold my horse.' "'But it is not always rich strangers who vanish by night from the house of Arambaksh.' chattered the Zuagir. Nay, poor desert men have slept there, because his score is less than that of the other taverns, and have been seen no more. Once a chief of the Zuagirs whose son had thus vanished complained to the satrap, Jungir Khan, who ordered the house searched by soldiers. "'And they found a cellar full of corpses?' asked Conan in good-humoured derision. "'Nay, they found not.' and drove the chief from the city with threats and curses. But he drew closer to Conan and shivered. Something else was found. At the edge of the desert, beyond the houses, there is a clump of palm-trees, and within that grove there is a pit, and within that pit have been found human bones, charred and blackened, not once, but many times. Which proves what? grunted the Sumerian. "'Arambaksh is a demon! Nay, in this accursed city, 
which Stygians built and which Hyrcanians rule, where white, brown, and black folk mingle together to produce hybrids of all unholy hues and breeds, who can tell who is a man and who a demon in disguise? Arambaksh is a demon in the form of a man. At night he assumes his true guise and carries his guests off into the desert, where his fellow demons from the waste meet in conclave. "'Why does he always carry off strangers?' asked Conan skeptically. "'The people of the city would not suffer him to slay their people, but they care not for the strangers who follow into his hands. Conan, you are of the West, and know not the secrets of this ancient land. But since the beginning of happenings the demons of the desert have worshipped Yog, the lord of the empty abodes, with fire.' fire that devours human victims. Be warned. You have dwelt for many moons in the tents of the Zuagirs, and you are our brother. Go not to the house of Arambaksh. Get out of sight, Conan said suddenly. Yonder comes a squad of the city watch. If they see you, they will remember a horse that was stolen from the satrap's stable. The Zuagir gasped and moved convulsively. He ducked between a booth and a stone horse-trough, pausing only long enough to chatter. "'Be warned, my brother! There are demons in the house of Arambaksh!' Then he darted down a narrow alley and was gone. Conan shifted his broad sword-belt to his liking and calmly returned the searching stares directed at him by the squad of watchmen as they swung past. They eyed him curiously and suspiciously for he was a man who stood out even in such a motley throng as crowded the winding streets of Zambula. His blue eyes and alien features distinguished him from the eastern swarms, and the straight sword at his hip added point to the racial difference. The watchman did not accost him, but swung on down the street, while the crowd opened a lane for them. They were pellish dim, squat, hook-nosed, with blue-black beards sweeping their mailed breasts. Mercenaries hired for work the ruling Turanians considered beneath themselves, and no less hated by the mongrel population for that reason. Conan glanced at the sun, just beginning to dip behind the flat-topped houses on the western side of the bazaar, and hitching once more at his belt, moved off in the direction of Arambaksh's tavern. With a hillman's stride he moved through the ever-shifting colors of the streets, where the ragged tunics of whining beggars brushed against the ermine-trimmed calats of lordly merchants and the pearl-sewn satin of rich courtesans. Giant black slaves slouched along, jostling blue-bearded wanderers from the Shemitish cities, ragged nomads from the surrounding deserts, traders and adventurers from all the lands of the East. The native population was no less heterogeneous. Here, centuries ago, the armies of Stygia had come, carving an empire out of the eastern desert. Zambula was but a small trading town then, lying amidst a ring of oases, and inhabited by descendants of nomads. The Stygians built it into a city and settled it with their own people, and with Shemite and Cushite slaves. The ceaseless caravans, threading the desert from east to west and back again, brought riches and more mingling of races. Then came the conquering Turanians, 
riding out of the east to thrust back the boundaries of Stygia. And now, for a generation, Zambula had been Tehran's westernmost outpost, ruled by a Tehranian satrap. The babble of a myriad tongues smote on the Sumerian's ears, as the restless pattern of the Zambula streets weaved about him, cleft now and then by a squad of clattering horsemen, the tall, supple warriors of Turan, with dark hawk faces, clinking metal and curved swords. The throng scampered from under their horses' hoofs, for they were the lords of Zambula. But tall, somber Stygians, standing back in the shadows, glowered darkly, remembering their ancient glories. The hybrid population cared little whether the king who controlled their destinies dwelt in dark Kimai or gleaming Agrapur. Jungir Khan ruled Zambula, and men whispered that Nefertari, the satrap's mistress, ruled Jungir Khan. But the people went their way, flaunting their myriad colors in the streets, bargaining, disputing, gambling, swilling, loving, as the people of Zambula have done for all the centuries its towers and minarets have lifted over the sands of the Karamun. Bronze lanterns, carved with leering dragons, had been lighted in the streets before Conan reached the house of Arambaksh. The tavern was the last occupied house on the street, which ran west. A wide garden, enclosed by a wall, where date-palms grew thick, separated it from the houses farther east. To the west of the inn stood another grove of palms, through which the street, now become a road, wound out into the desert. Across the road from the tavern stood a row of deserted huts, shaded by straggling palm-trees, and occupied only by bats and jackals. As Conan came down the road he wondered why the beggars, so plentiful in Zambula, had not appropriated these empty houses for sleeping-quarters. The lights ceased some distance behind him. There were no lanterns, except the one hanging from the tavern gate. Only the stars, the soft dust of the road underfoot, and the rustle of the palm-leaves in the desert breeze. Aram's gate did not open upon the road, but upon the alley which ran between the tavern and the garden of the date-palms. Conan jerked lustily at the rope which depended from the bell beside the lantern, augmenting its clamor by hammering on the iron-bound teakwork gate with the hilt of his sword. A wicket opened in the gate, and a black face peered through. "'Open, blast you,' requested Conan. "'I'm a guest. I've paid Aram for a room, and a room I'll have by Crom.' The black craned his neck to stare into the starlit road behind Conan but he opened the gate without comment and closed it again behind the Cimmerian, locking and bolting it. The wall was unusually high, but there were many thieves in Zambula, and a house on the edge of the desert might have to be defended against a nocturnal nomad raid. Conan strode through a garden where great pale blossoms nodded in starlight, and entered the tap-room, where a Stygian with the shaven head of a student sat at a table brooding over nameless mysteries, and some nondescripts raggled over a game of dice in a corner. Aram Bash came forward, walking softly, a portly man, with a black beard that swept his breast, a jutting hook-nose, 
and small black eyes which were never still. "'You wish food?' he asked. "'Drink?' "'I ate a joint of beef and a loaf of bread at the souk,' grunted Conan. "'Bring me a tankard of gazan wine. I've got just enough left to pay for it.' He tossed a copper coin on the wine-splashed board. "'You did not win at the gaming-tables?' "'How could I, with only a handful of silver to begin with? I paid you for the room this morning because I knew I'd probably lose. I wanted to be sure I had a roof over my head tonight. I notice nobody sleeps in the streets of Zambula. The very beggars hunt a niche they can barricade before dark. The city must be full of a particularly bloodthirsty brand of thieves.' He gulped the cheap wine with relish, and then followed Aram out of the tap-room. Behind him the players halted their game to stare after him with a cryptic speculation in their eyes. They said nothing, but the Stygian laughed, a ghastly laugh of inhuman cynicism and mockery. The others lowered their eyes uneasily, avoiding one another's glance. The arts studied by a Stygian scholar are not calculated to make him share the feelings of a normal human being. Conan followed Aram down a corridor lighted by copper lamps, and it did not please him to note his host's noiseless tread. Aram's feet were clad in soft slippers, and the hallway was carpeted with thick Turanian rugs. But there was an unpleasant suggestion of stealthiness about the Zambulan. At the end of the winding corridor Aram halted at a door, across which a heavy iron bar rested in powerful metal brackets. This Aram lifted and showed the Cimmerian into a well-appointed chamber, the windows of which, Conan instantly noted, were small and strongly set with twisted bars of iron, tastefully gilded. There were rugs on the floor, a couch, after the Eastern fashion, and ornately carved stools. It was a much more elaborate chamber than Conan could have procured for the price near the center of the city a fact that had at first attracted him, when, that morning, he discovered how slim a purse his roisterings for the past few days had left him. He had ridden into Zambula from the desert a week before. Aram had lighted a bronze lamp, and he now called Conan's attention to the two doors. Both were provided with heavy bolts. "'You may sleep safely tonight, Cimmerian,' said Aram bleaking over his bushy beard from the inner doorway. Conan grunted and tossed his naked broadsword on the couch. "'Your bolts and bars are strong, but I always sleep with steel by my side.' Aram made no reply. He stood fingering his thick beard for a moment as he stared at the grim weapon. Then silently he withdrew, closing the door behind him. Conan shot the bolt into place crossed the room, opened the opposite door, and looked out. The room was on the side of the house that faced the road running west from the city. The door opened into a small court that was enclosed by a wall of its own. The end walls, which shut it off from the rest of the tavern compound, were high and without entrances. But the wall that flanked the road was low, and there was no lock on the gate. Conan stood for a moment in the door the glow of the bronze lamp behind him, looking down the road to where it vanished among the dense palms. 
their leaves rustled together in the faint breeze. Beyond them lay the naked desert. Far up the street, in the other direction, lights gleamed and the noises of the city came faintly to him. Here was only starlight, the whispering of the palm-leaves, and beyond that low wall the dust of the road and the deserted huts thrusting their flat roofs against the low stars. Somewhere beyond the palm-groves a drum began. The garbled warnings of the Zuagir returned to him, seeming somehow less fantastic than they had seemed in the crowded sunlit streets. He wondered again at the riddle of those empty huts. Why did the beggar shun them? He turned back into the chamber, shut the door, and bolted it. The light began to flicker, and he investigated, swearing when he found the palm oil in the lamp was almost exhausted. He started to shout for Aram, then shrugged his shoulders and blew out the light. In the soft darkness he stretched himself fully clad on the couch, his sinewy hand by instinct searching for and closing on the hilt of his broadsword. Glancing idly at the stars framed in the barred windows, with the murmur of the breeze through the palms in his ears, he sank into slumber with a vague consciousness of the muttering drum out on the desert the low rumble and mutter of a leather-covered drum, beaten with soft, rhythmic strokes of an open black hand. CHAPTER Two, THE NIGHT SKULKERS It was the stealthy opening of a door which awakened the Sumerian. He did not awake as civilized men do, drowsy and drugged and stupid. He awoke instantly, with a clear mind, recognizing the sound that had interrupted his sleep. Lying there tensely in the dark, he saw the outer door slowly open. In the widening crack of starlit sky he saw framed a great black bulk, broad, stooping shoulders, and a misshapen head blocked out against the stars. Conan felt the skin crawl between his shoulders. He had bolted that door securely. How could it be opening now? save by supernatural agency. And how could a human being possess a head like that outlined against the stars? All the tales he had heard in the Zuagir tents of devils and goblins came back to bead his flesh with clammy sweat. Now the monster slid noiselessly into the room, with a crouching posture and shambling gait. And a familiar scent assailed the Sumerian's nostrils, but did not reassure him since Zuagir legendary represented demons as smelling like that. Noiselessly Conan coiled his long legs under him. His naked sword was in his right hand, and when he struck it was as suddenly and murderously as a tiger lunging out of the dark. Not even a demon could have avoided that catapulting charge. His sword met and clove through flesh and bone, and something went heavily to the floor with a strangling cry. Conan crouched in the dark above it, sword dripping in his hand. Devil or beast or man, the thing was dead there on the floor. He sensed death as any wild thing senses it. He glared through the half-open door into the starlit court beyond. The gate stood open, but the court was empty. Conan shut the door but did not bolt it. Groping in the darkness, he found the lamp and lighted it. 
There was enough oil in it to burn for a minute or so. An instant later he was bending over the figure that sprawled on the floor in a pool of blood. It was a gigantic black man, naked but for a loincloth. One hand still grasped the knotty-headed bludgeon. The fellow's kinky wool was built up into horn-like spindles with twigs and dried mud. This barbaric coiffure had given the head its misshapen appearance in the starlight. Provided with a clue to the riddle, Conan pushed back the thick red lips and grunted as he stared down at the teeth filed to points. He understood now the mystery of the strangers who had disappeared from the house of Arambaksh, the riddle of the black drum thrumming out there beyond the palm-groves, and of that pit of charred bones, that pit where strange meat might be roasted under the stars, while black beasts squatted about to glut a hideous hunger. The man on the floor was a cannibal slave from Darfar. There were many of his kind in the city. Cannibalism was not tolerated openly in Zambula. But Conan knew now why people locked themselves in so securely at night, and why even beggars shun the open alleys and doorless ruins. He grunted in disgust as he visualized brutish black shadows skulking up and down the nighted streets, seeking human prey, and such men as Aram Baksh to open the doors to them. The innkeeper was not a demon, he was worse. The slaves from Darfar were notorious thieves. There was no doubt that some of their pilfered loot found its way into the hands of Aram Baksh, and in return he sold them human flesh. Conan blew out the light, stepped to the door, and opened it, and ran his hand over the ornaments on the outer side. One of them was movable and worked the bolt inside. The room was a trap to catch human prey like rabbits. But this time, instead of a rabbit, it had caught a saber-toothed tiger. Conan returned to the other door, lifted the bolt, and pressed against it. It was immovable, and he remembered the bolt on the other side. Aram was taking no chances, either with his victims or the men with whom he dealt. Buckling on his sword-belt, the Sumerian strode out into the court, closing the door behind him. He had no intention of delaying the settlement of his reckoning with Aram Baksh. He wondered how many poor devils had been bludgeoned in their sleep and dragged out of that room and down the road that ran through the shadowed palm-groves to the roasting-pit. He halted in the court. The drum was still muttering, and he caught the reflection of a leaping red glare through the groves. Cannibalism was more than a perverted appetite with the black men of Darfar. It was an integral element of their ghastly cult. The black vultures were already in conclave. But whatever flesh filled their bellies that night, it would not be his. To reach Arambaksh, he must climb one of the walls which separated the small enclosure from the main compound. They were high, meant to keep out the man-eaters, but Conan was no swamp-bred black man. His thews had been steeled in boyhood on the sheer cliffs of his native hills. He was standing at the foot of the nearer wall when a cry echoed under the trees. In an instant Conan was crouching at the gate, glaring down the road. The sound had come from the shadows of the huts across the road. He heard a frantic choking and gurgling, 
such as might result from a desperate attempt to shriek, with a black hand fastened over the victim's mouth. A close-knit clump of figures emerged from the shadows beyond the huts, and started down the road, three huge black men carrying a slender, struggling figure between them. Conan caught the glimmer of pale limbs writhing in the starlight, even as, with a convulsive wrench, the captive slipped from the grasp of the brutal fingers and came flying up the road, a supple young woman, naked as the day she was born. Conan saw her plainly before she ran out of the road and into the shadows between the huts. The blacks were at her heels, and back in the shadows the figures merged, and an intolerable scream of anguish and horror rang out. Stirred to red rage by the ghoulishness of the episode, Conan raced across the road. Neither victim nor abductors were aware of his presence until the soft swish of the dust about his feet brought them about, and then he was almost upon them, coming with the gusty fury of a hill wind. Two of the blacks turned to meet him, lifting their bludgeons. But they failed to estimate properly the speed at which he was coming. One of them was down, disemboweled, before he could strike and wheeling cat-like, Conan evaded the stroke of the other's cudgel and lashed in a whistling countercut. The black's head flew into the air. The headless body took three staggering steps, spurting blood and clawing horribly at the air with groping hands, and then slumped to the dust. The remaining cannibal gave back with a strangled yell, hurling his captive from him. She tripped and rolled in the dust and the black fled in blind panic toward the city. Conan was at his heels. Fear winged the black feet, but before they reached the easternmost hut he sensed death at his back and bellowed like an ox in the slaughter-yards. "'Black dog of hell!' Conan drove his sword between the dusky shoulders with such vengeful fury that the broad blade stood out half its length from the black breast. With a choking cry the black stumbled headlong, and Conan braced his feet and dragged out his sword as his victim fell. Only the breeze disturbed the leaves. Conan shook his head as a lion shakes its mane, and growled his unsatiated bloodlust. But no more shapes slunk from the shadows, and before the huts the starlit road stretched empty. He whirled at the quick patter of feet behind him but it was only the girl, rushing to throw herself on him and clasp his neck in a desperate grasp, frantic from terror of the abominable fate she had just escaped. "'Easy, girl,' he grunted. "'You're all right. How did they catch you?' She sobbed something unintelligible. He forgot all about Arambaksh as he scrutinized her by the light of the stars. She was white, though a very definite brunette obviously one of Zambula's many mixed breeds. She was tall, with a slender, supple form, as he was in a good position to observe. Admiration burned in his fierce eyes as he looked down on her splendid bosom and her lithe limbs, which still quivered from fright and exertion. He passed an arm around her flexible waist and said, reassuringly, "'Stop shaking, wench. You're safe enough.' His touch seemed to restore her shaken sanity. She tossed back her thick, glossy locks and cast a fearful glance over her shoulder, 
while she pressed closer to the Sumerian as if seeking security in the contact. "'They caught me in the streets,' she muttered, shuddering, "'lying in wait beneath a dark arch. Black men, like great hulking apes. Set have mercy on me. I shall dream of it.' "'What were you doing out on the streets this time of night?' he inquired, fascinated by the satiny feel of her sleek skin under his questing fingers. She raked back her hair and stared blankly up into his face. She did not seem aware of his caresses. "'My lover,' she said, "'my lover drove me into the streets. He went mad and tried to kill me. As I fled from him I was seized by those beasts.' "'Beauty like yours might drive a man mad.' quoth Conan, running his fingers experimentally through her glossy tresses. She shook her head, like one emerging from a daze. She no longer trembled, and her voice was steady. It was the spite of a priest, of Tutrasmek, the high priest of Hanuman, who desires me for himself, the dog. No need to curse him for that, grinned Conan. The old hyena has better taste than I thought. She ignored the bluff compliment. She was regaining her poise swiftly. "'My lover is a young Turanian soldier. To spite me, Totrasmek gave him a drug that drove him mad. Tonight he snatched up a sword and came at me to slay me in his madness, but I fled from him into the streets. The negro seized me and brought me to this—' "'What was that?' Conan had already moved. Soundlessly as a shadow he drew her behind the nearest hut, beneath the straggling palms. They stood in tense stillness, while the low mutterings both had heard grew louder until voices were distinguishable. A group of negroes, some nine or ten, were coming along the road from the direction of the city. The girl clutched Conan's arm, and he felt the terrified quivering of her supple body against his. Now they could understand the gutturals of the black men. "'Our brothers have already assembled at the pit,' said one. "'We have had no luck. I hope they have enough for us.' "'Aram promised us a man,' muttered another, and Conan mentally promised Aram something. "'Aram keeps his word,' grunted yet another. "'Many a man we have taken from his tavern, but we pay him well.' I myself have given him ten bales of silk I stole from my master. It was good silk, by set. The black shuffle passed, bare splay feet scuffing up the dust, and their voices dwindled down the road. "'Well, for us those corpses are lying behind these huts,' muttered Conan. "'If they look in Aram's death-room, they'll find another. Let's be gone.' "'Yes, let us hasten,' begged the girl almost hysterical again. My lover is wandering somewhere in the streets alone. The negroes may take him. A devil of a custom this is, growled Conan, as he led the way toward the city, paralleling the road but keeping behind the huts and straggling trees. Why don't the citizens clean out these black dogs? They are valuable slaves, murmured the girl. There are so many of them they might revolt if they are denied the flesh for which they lust. The people of Zambula know they skulk the streets at night, and all are careful to remain within locked doors, 
except when something unforeseen happens, as it did to me. The blacks prey on anything they catch, but they seldom catch anybody but strangers. The people of Zambula are not concerned with the strangers that pass through the city. Such men as Arambaksh sell these strangers to the blacks. He would not dare attempt such a thing with a citizen. Conan spat in disgust, and a moment later led his companion out into the road which was becoming a street, with still unlighted houses on each side. Slinking in the shadows was not congenial to his nature. "'Where do you want to go?' he asked. The girl did not seem to object to his arm about her waist. "'To my house, to rouse my servants,' she answered. "'To bid them search for my lover. I do not wish the city, the priests, anyone to know of his madness. He—he is a young officer with a promising future. Perhaps we can drive this madness from him if we can find him.' "'If we find him?' rumbled Conan. "'What makes you think I want to spend the night scouring the streets for a lunatic?' She cast a quick glance into his face and properly interpreted the gleam in his blue eyes. Any woman could have known that he would follow her wherever she led, for a while at least. But, being a woman, she concealed her knowledge of that fact. "'Please,' she began with a hint of tears in her voice, "'I have no one else to ask for help. You have been kind.' "'All right,' he grunted. "'All right.' What's the young reprobate's name? Why, Alaftal. I am Zabibi, a dancing girl. I have danced often before the satrap, Jongir Khan, and his mistress, Nefertari, and before all the lords and royal ladies of Zambula. Totrasmek desired me, and because I repulsed him, he made me the innocent tool of his vengeance against Alaftal. I asked a love potion of Totrasmek not suspecting the depth of his guile and hate. He gave me a drug to mix with my lover's wine, and he swore that when Alafdal drank it he would love me even more madly than ever, and grant me every wish. I mixed the drug secretly with my lover's wine, but having drunk, my lover went raving mad and things came about as I have told you. Curse Tatrasmek, the hybrid snake! Ah! She caught his arm convulsively and both stopped short. They had come into a district of shops and stalls, all deserted and unlighted, for the hour was late. They were passing an alley, and in its mouth a man was standing, motionless and silent. His head was lowered, but Conan caught the weird gleam of eerie eyes regarding them unblinkingly. His skin crawled, not with fear of the sword in the man's hand, but because of the uncanny suggestion of his posture and silence. They suggested madness. Conan pushed the girl aside and drew his sword. "'Don't kill him,' she begged. "'In the name of Set, do not slay him. You are strong. Overpower him.' "'We'll see,' he muttered, grasping the sword in his right hand and clenching his left into a mallet-like fist. He took a wary step toward the alley, and with a horrible moaning laugh the Turanian charged. As he came he swung his sword, rising on his toes as he put all the power of his body behind the blows. Sparks flashed blue as Conan parried the blade, and the next instant 
the madman was stretched senseless in the dust from a thundering buffet of Conan's left fist. The girl ran forward. Oh, he is not! He is not! Conan bent swiftly, turning the man on his side, and ran quick fingers over him. He's not hurt much, he grunted, bleeding at the nose, but anybody's likely to do that after a clout on the jaw. He'll come to after a bit, and maybe his mind will be right. In the meantime, I'll tie his wrists with his sword-belt, so. Now, where do you want me to take him?" Wait! She knelt beside the senseless figure, seized the bound hands, and scanned them avidly. Then, shaking her head as if in baffled disappointment, she rose. She came close to the giant Cimmerian, and laid her slender hands on his arching breast. Her dark eyes, like wet black jewels in the starlight, gazed up into his. "'You are a man. Help me. Tortres Mech must die. Slay him for me.' "'And put my neck in a Turanian noose?' he grunted. "'Nay.' The slender arms, strong as pliant steel, were around his corded neck. Her supple body throbbed against his. "'The Hyrcanians have no love for Tortres Mech.' The priest of Set fear him. He is a mongrel who rules men by fear and superstition. I worship Set, and the Turanians bow to Erlek, but Tatrasmek sacrifices to Hanuman the accursed. The Turanian lords fear his black arts and his power over the hybrid population, and they hate him. If he were slain in his temple at night, they would not seek his slayer very closely. And what of his magic? rumbled the Cimmerian. You are a fighting man, she answered. To risk your life is part of your profession. For a price, he admitted. There will be a price, she breathed, rising on tiptoe to gaze into his eyes. The nearness of her vibrant body drove a flame through his veins. The perfume of her breath mounted to his brain but as his arms closed about her supple figure she avoided them with a lithe movement, saying, "'Wait! First serve me in this matter!' "'Name your price,' he spoke with some difficulty. "'Pick up my lover,' she directed, and the Cimmerian stooped and swung the tall form easily to his broad shoulder. At the moment he felt as if he could have toppled over Jungir Khan's palace with equal ease. The girl murmured an endearment to the unconscious man, and there was no hypocrisy in her attitude. She obviously loved Alafdal sincerely. Whatever business arrangement she made with Conan would have no bearing on her relationship with Alafdal. Women are more practical about these things than men. "'Follow me!' she hurried along the street, while the Cimmerian strode easily after her, in no way discomforted by his limp burden. He kept a wary eye out for black shadows skulking under arches, but saw nothing suspicious. Doubtless the men of Darfar were all gathered at the roasting pit. The girl turned down a narrow side street, and presently knocked cautiously at an arched door. Almost instantly a wicket opened in the upper panel, and a black face glanced out. She bent close to the opening, whispering swiftly. Bolts creaked in their sockets, and the door opened. 
a giant black man stood framed against the soft glow of a copper lamp. A quick glance showed Conan the man was not from Darfar. His teeth were unfiled and his kinky hair was cropped close to his skull. He was from Wadai. At a word from Zabibi, Conan gave the limp body into the black's arms, and saw the young officer laid on a velvet divan. He showed no signs of returning consciousness. The blow that had rendered him senseless might have felled an ox. Zabibi bent over him for an instant, her fingers nervously twining and twisting. Then she straightened and beckoned the Cimmerian. The door closed softly, the locks clicked behind them, and the closing wicket shut off the glow of the lamps. In the starlight of the street Zabibi took Conan's hand. Her own hand trembled a little. "'You will not fail me?' He shook his maned head, massive against the stars. "'Then follow me to Hanuman's shrine, and the gods have mercy on our souls.' Along the silent streets they moved like phantoms of antiquity. They went in silence. Perhaps the girl was thinking of her lover lying senseless on the divan under the copper lamps, or was shrinking with fear of what lay ahead of them in the demon-haunted shrine of Hanuman. The barbarian was thinking only of the woman moving so supplely beside him. The perfume of her scented hair was in his nostrils. The sensuous aura of her presence filled his brain and left room for no other thoughts. Once they heard the clank of brass-shod feet and drew into the shadows of a gloomy arch while a squad of Pelishtim watchmen swung past. There were fifteen of them. They marched in close formation, pikes at the ready, and the rearmost men had their broad brass shields slung on their backs to protect them from a knife-stroke from behind. The skulking menace of the black man-eaters was a threat even to armed men. As soon as the clang of their sandals had receded up the street, Conan and the girl emerged from their hiding-place and hurried on. A few moments later they saw the squat, flat-topped edifice they sought looming ahead of them. The temple of Hanuman stood alone in the midst of a broad square which lay silent and deserted beneath the stars. A marble wall surrounded the shrine, with a broad opening directly before the portico. This opening had no gate or any sort of barrier. "'Why don't the blacks seek their prey here?' muttered Conan. "'There's nothing to keep them out of the temple.' He could feel the trembling of Zabibi's body as she pressed close to him. "'They fear Totrasmek as all in Zambula fear him, even Jonkir Khan and Nefertari. Come, come quickly, before my courage flows from me like water." The girl's fear was evident, but she did not falter. Conan drew his sword and strode ahead of her as they advanced through the open gateway. He knew the hideous habits of the priests of the East and was aware that an invader of Hanuman's shrine might expect to encounter almost any sort of nightmare horror. He knew there was a good chance that neither he nor the girl would ever leave the shrine alive, but he had risked his life too many times before to devote much thought to that consideration. They entered a court paved with marble which gleamed whitely in the starlight. A short flight of broad marble steps led up to the pillared portico. 
the great bronze doors stood wide open, as they had stood for centuries. But no worshippers burnt incense within. In the day, men and women might come timidly into the shrine and place offerings to the ape-god on the black altar. At night, the people shunned the temple of Hanuman as hares shunned the lair of the serpent. Burning censers bathed the interior in a soft weird glow that created an illusion of unreality. Near the rear wall, behind the black stone altar, sat the god with his gaze fixed forever on the open door through which, for centuries, his victims had come, dragged by chains of roses. A faint groove ran from the sill to the altar, and when Conan's foot felt it, he stepped away as quickly as if he had trodden upon a snake. That groove had been worn by the faltering feet of the multitude of those who had died screaming on that grim altar. Bestial in the uncertain light, Hanuman leered with his carven mask. He sat, not as an ape would crouch, but cross-legged as a man would sit, but his aspect was no less simian for that reason. He was carved from black marble, but his eyes were rubies, which glowed red and lustful as the coals of hell's deepest pits. His great hands lay upon his lap, palms upward, taloned fingers spread and grasping. In the gross emphasis of his attributes, in the leer of his satyr countenance, was reflected the abominable cynicism of the degenerate cult which deified him. The girl moved around the image, making toward the back wall, when her sleek flank brushed against a carven knee. She shrank aside and shuddered as if a reptile had touched her. There was a space of several feet between the broad back of the idol and the marble wall with its frieze of gold leaves. On either hand, flanking the idol, an ivory door under a gold arch was set in the wall. "'Those doors open into each end of a hairpin-shaped corridor,' she said hurriedly. "'Once I was in the interior of the shrine. Once!' She shivered and twitched her slim shoulders at a memory both terrifying and obscene. The corridor is bent like a horseshoe, with each horn opening into this room. Tartarus Mech's chambers are enclosed within the curve of the corridor and open into it. But there is a secret door in this wall which opens directly into an inner chamber. She began to run her hands over the smooth surface, where no crack or crevice showed. Conan stood beside her, sword in hand, glancing warily about him. The silence, the emptiness of the shrine, with imagination picturing what might lie behind that wall, made him feel like a wild beast nosing a trap. Ah! The girl had found the hidden spring at last. A square opening gaped blackly in the wall. Sit! she screamed, and even as Conan leapt toward her, he saw that a great misshapen hand had fastened itself in her hair. She was snatched off her feet and jerked head-first through the opening. Conan, grabbing ineffectually at her, felt his fingers slip from a naked limb, and in an instant she had vanished and the wall showed blank as before. Only from beyond it came briefly the muffled sounds of a struggle, a scream faintly heard, and a low laugh that made Conan's blood congeal in his veins.
Chapter 3 Black Hands Gripping With an oath, the Cimmerian smote the wall a terrific blow with the pommel of his sword, and the marble cracked and chipped. But the hidden door did not give way, and reason told him that doubtless it had been bolted on the other side of the wall. Turning, he sprang across the chamber to one of the ivory doors. He lifted his sword to shatter the panels, but on a venture tried the door first with his left hand. It swung open easily, and he glared into a long corridor that curved away into dimness under the weird light of censers similar to those in the shrine. A heavy gold bolt showed on the jamb of the door, and he touched it lightly with his fingertips. The faint warmness of the metal could have been detected only by a man whose faculties were akin to those of a wolf. That bolt had been touched, and therefore drawn, within the last few seconds. The affair was taking on more and more of the aspect of a baited trap. He might have known Tatrasmek would know when anyone entered the temple. To enter the corridor would undoubtedly be to walk into whatever trap the priest had set for him. But Conan did not hesitate. Somewhere in that dim-lit interior Zabibi was a captive, and from what he knew of the characteristics of Hanuman's priests he was sure that she needed help badly. Conan stalked into the corridor with a pantherish tread, poised to strike right or left. On his left ivory arched doors opened into the corridor, and he tried each in turn. All were locked. He had gone perhaps seventy-five feet when the corridor bent sharply to the left, describing the curve the girl had mentioned. A door opened into this curve, and it gave under his hand. He was looking into a broad square chamber, somewhat more clearly lighted than the corridor. Its walls were of white marble, the floor of ivory, the ceiling of fretted silver. He saw divans of rich satin, gold-worked footstools of ivory, a disc-shaped table of some massive metal-like substance. On one of the divans a man was reclining, looking toward the door. He laughed as he met the Cimmerian's startled glare. This man was naked except for a loincloth and high-strapped sandals. He was brown-skinned, with close-cropped black hair and restless black eyes that set off a broad, arrogant face. In girth and breadth he was enormous, with huge limbs on which the great muscles swelled and rippled at each slightest movement. His hands were the largest Conan had ever seen. The assurance of gigantic physical strength colored his every action and inflection. "'Why not enter, barbarian?' he called mockingly, with an exaggerated gesture of invitation. Conan's eyes began to smolder ominously, but he trod warily into the chamber, his sword ready. "'Who the devil are you?' he growled. "'I am Baltior,' the man answered. "'Once, long ago, and in another land, I had another name. But this is a good name, and why Tatrasmek gave it to me, any temple wench can tell you.' "'So you're his dog,' grunted Conan. "'Well, curse your brown-hide, Baltior! Where's the wench you jerked through the wall?' 
My master entertains her," laughed Baltior. Listen. From beyond a door opposite the one by which Conan had entered there sounded a woman's scream, faint and muffled in the distance. Blast your soul! Conan took a stride toward the door, then wheeled with his skin tingling. Baltior was laughing at him, and that laugh was edged with menace that made the hackles rise on Conan's neck and sent a red wave of murder-lust driving across his vision. He started toward Baltior, the knuckles on his sword-hand showing white. With a swift motion the brown man threw something at him, a shining crystal sphere that glistened in the weird light. Conan dodged instinctively. But, miraculously, the globe stopped short in mid-air, a few feet from his face. It did not fall to the floor. It hung suspended, as if by invisible filaments, some five feet above the floor. And as he glared in amazement, it began to rotate with growing speed. And as it revolved it grew, expanded, became nebulous. It filled the chamber. It enveloped him. It blotted out furniture, walls, the smiling countenance of Baubtior. He was lost in the midst of a blinding bluish blur of whirling speed. Terrific winds screamed past Conan, tugging, tearing at him, striving to wrench him from his feet, to drag him into the vortex that spun madly before him. With a choking cry Conan lurched backward, reeled felt a solid wall against his back. At the contact the illusion ceased to be. The whirling, titanic sphere vanished like a bursting bubble. Conan reeled upright in the silver-ceilinged room, with a gray mist coiling about his feet, and saw Baltior lolling on the divan, shaking with silent laughter. Son of a slut! Conan lunged at him but the mist swirled up from the floor, blotting out that giant brown form. Groping in a rolling cloud that blinded him, Conan felt a rending sensation of dislocation. And then room and mist and brown man were gone together. He was standing alone among the high reeds of a marshy fen, and a buffalo was lunging at him, head down. He leapt aside from the ripping scimitar-curved horns and drove his sword in behind the foreleg, through ribs and heart. And then it was not a buffalo dying there in the mud, but the brown-skinned Baltior. With a curse Conan struck off his head, and the head soared from the ground and snapped beast-like tusks into his throat. For all his mighty strength he could not tear it loose. He was choking, strangling. Then there was a rush and roar through space, the dislocating shock of an immeasurable impact, and he was back in the chamber with Baltior, whose head was once more set firmly on his shoulders, and who laughed silently at him from the divan. "'Mesmerism!' muttered Conan, crouching and digging his toes hard against the marble. His eyes blazed. This brown dog was playing with him making sport of him. But this mummery, this child's play of mists and shadow of thoughts, it could not harm him. 
He had but to leap and strike, and the brown acolyte would be a mangled corpse under his heel. This time he would not be fooled by shadows of illusion. But he was. A blood-curdling snarl sounded behind him, and he wheeled and struck in a flash at the panther crouching to spring on him from the metal-colored table. Even as he struck, the apparition vanished and his blade clashed deafeningly on the adamantine surface. Instantly he sensed something abnormal. The blade stuck to the table. He wrenched at it savagely. It did not give. This was no mesmeristic trick. The table was a giant magnet. He gripped the hilt with both hands, when a voice at his shoulder brought him about to face the brown man, who had at last risen from the divan. Slightly taller than Conan, and much heavier, Baltior loomed before him, a daunting image of muscular development. His mighty arms were unnaturally long, and his great hands opened and closed, twitching convulsively. Conan released the hilt of his imprisoned sword and fell silent, watching his enemy through slitted lids. "'Your head, Cimmerian,' taunted Baltior. "'I shall take it with my bare hands, twisting it from your shoulders as the head of a fowl is twisted. Thus the sons of Kosala offer sacrifice to Yajur. Barbarian, you look upon a strangler of Yotapung. I was chosen by the priests of Yajur in my infancy, and throughout childhood, boyhood, and youth I trained in the art of slaying with the naked hands, for only thus are the sacrifices enacted. Yajur loves blood, and we waste not a drop from the victim's veins. When I was a child they gave me infants to throttle. When I was a boy I strangled young girls. As a youth women, old men, and young boys. Not until I reached my full manhood was I given a strong man to slay on the altar of Yotapung. For years I offered the sacrifices to Yajur. Hundreds of necks have snapped between these fingers. He worked them before the Sumerian's angry eyes. Why I fled from Yotapong to become Totrasmek's servant is no concern of yours. In a moment you will be beyond curiosity. The priests of Kosala, the stranglers of Yajur, are strong beyond belief of men. And I was stronger than any. With my hands, barbarian, I shall break your neck. And, like the stroke of twin cobras, the great hands closed on Conan's throat. The Sumerian made no attempt to dodge or fend them away, but his own hands darted to the Kosalan's bull neck. Baltior's black eyes widened as he felt the thick cords of muscles that protected the barbarian's throat. With a snarl he exerted his inhuman strength, and knots and lumps and ropes of thews rose along his massive arms. And then a choking gasp burst from him as Conan's fingers locked on his throat. For an instant they stood there like statues, their faces masks of effort, veins beginning to stand out purply on their temples. Conan's thin lips drew back from his teeth in a grinning snarl. Baltior's eyes were distended. In them grew an awful surprise and the glimmer of fear. Both men stood motionless as images, except for the expanding of their muscles on rigid arms and braced legs, 
but strength beyond common conception was warring there, strength that might have uprooted trees and crushed the skulls of bullocks. The wind whistled suddenly from between Baltior's parted teeth. His face was growing purple. Fear flooded his eyes. His thews seemed ready to burst from his arms and shoulders. Yet the muscles of the Cimmerian's thick neck did not give. They felt like masses of woven iron cords under his desperate fingers. But his own flesh was giving way under the iron fingers of the Cimmerian, which ground deeper and deeper into the yielding throat muscles, crushing them in upon jugular and windpipe. The statuesque immobility of the group gave way to sudden frenzied motion, as the Kosalan began to wrench and heave, seeking to throw himself backward. He let go of Conan's throat and grasped his wrists, trying to tear away those inexorable fingers. With a sudden lunge, Conan bore him backward until the small of his back crashed against the table. And still farther over its edge Conan bent him, back and back, until his spine was ready to snap. Conan's low laugh was merciless as the ring of steel. "'You fool!' he all but whispered. "'I think you never saw a man from the West before. Did you deem yourself strong, because you were able to twist the heads off civilized folk, poor weaklings with muscles like rotten string? Hell, break the neck of a wild Cimmerian bull before you call yourself strong. I did that before I was a full-grown man.' like this!" And with a savage wrench he twisted Baltior's head around until the ghastly face leered over the left shoulder, and the vertebrae snapped like a rotten branch. Conan hurled the flopping corpse to the floor, turned to the sword again, and gripped the hilt with both hands, bracing his feet against the floor. Blood trickled down his broad breast from the wounds Baltior's fingernails had torn in the skin of his neck. His black hair was damp. Sweat ran down his face, and his chest heaved. For all his vocal scorn of Baltior's strength, he had almost met his match in the inhuman Kosalan. But without pausing to catch his breath, he exerted all his strength in a mighty wrench that tore the sword from the magnet where it clung. Another instant, and he had pushed open the door from behind which the scream had sounded and was looking down a long straight corridor lined with ivory doors. The other end was masked by a rich velvet curtain, and from beyond that curtain came the devilish strains of such music as Conan had never heard, not even in nightmares. It made the short hairs bristle on the back of his neck. Mingled with it was the panting, hysterical sobbing of a woman. Grasping his sword firmly, he glided down the corridor. Chapter 4 Dance, Girl, Dance When Zabibi was jerked head first through the aperture which opened in the wall behind the idol, her first dizzy, disconnected thought was that her time had come. She instinctively shut her eyes and waited for the blow to fall, but instead she felt herself dumped unceremoniously onto the smooth marble floor, which bruised her knees and hip. Opening her eyes she stared fearfully around her, just as a muffled impact sounded from beyond the wall. She saw a brown-skinned giant in a loincloth standing over her, 
and across the chamber into which she had come a man sat on a divan, with his back to a rich velvet curtain, a broad, fleshy man, with fat white hands and snaky eyes. And her flesh crawled, for this man was Tatrasmek, the priest of Hanuman, who for years had spun his slimy webs of power throughout the city of Zambula. The barbarian seeks to batter his way through the wall, said Tatrasmek sardonically, but the bolt will hold. The girl saw that a heavy golden bolt had been shot across the hidden door, which was plainly discernible from this side of the wall. The bolt and its sockets would have resisted the charge of an elephant. Go open one of the doors for him, Baltior, ordered Tatrasmek. Slay him in the square chamber at the other end of the corridor. The Kosalan salaamed and departed by the way of a door in the side wall of the chamber. Zabibi rose, staring fearfully at the priest, whose eyes ran avidly over her splendid figure. To this she was indifferent. A dancer of Zambula was accustomed to nakedness. But the cruelty in his eyes started her limbs to quivering. Again you come to me in my retreat, beautiful one, he purred with cynical hypocrisy. It is an unexpected honor. You seem to enjoy your former visit so little that I dared not hope for you to repeat it. Yet I did all in my power to provide you with an interesting experience. For a Zambulan dancer to blush would be an impossibility but a smolder of anger mingled with the fear in Zabibi's dilated eyes. "'Fat pig! You know I did not come here for love of you!' "'No!' laughed Tatrasmek. "'You came like a fool, creeping through the night with a stupid barbarian to cut my throat. Why should you seek my life?' "'You know why!' she cried, knowing the futility of trying to dissemble. You are thinking of your lover," he laughed. The fact that you are here seeking my life shows that he quaffed the drug I gave you. Well, did you not ask for it? And did I not send what you asked for, out of the love I bear you? I asked you for a drug that would make him slumber harmlessly for a few hours," she said bitterly. And you— you sent your servant with a drug that drove him mad. I was a fool ever to trust you. I might have known your protestations of friendship were lies to disguise your hate and spite." "'Why did you wish your lover to sleep?' he retorted. "'So you could steal from him the only thing he would never give you, the ring with the jewel men call the Star of Korala the star stolen from the queen of Ophir, who would pay a roomful of gold for its return. He would not give it to you willingly, because he knew that it holds a magic, which, when properly controlled, would enslave the hearts of any of the opposite sex. You wish to steal it from him, fearing that his magicians would discover the key to that magic, and he would forget you in his conquests of the queens of the world. You would sell it back to the Queen of Ophir, who understands its power, and would use it to enslave men, as she did before it was stolen. 
And why did you want it? she demanded sulkily. I understand its powers. It would increase the power of my arts. Well, she snapped, you have it now. I have the star of Korala? Nay, you err. Why bother to lie? she retorted bitterly. He had it on his finger when he drove me into the streets. He did not have it when I found him again. Your servant must have been watching the house, and have taken it from him after I escaped him. To the devil with it! I want my lover back, sane and whole. You have the ring. You have punished us both. Why do you not restore his mind to him? Can you?" "'I could,' he assured her, in evident enjoyment of her distress. He drew a file from among his robes. "'This contains the juice of the golden lotus. If your lover drank it, he would be sane again. Yes, I will be merciful. You have been thwarted and flouted me, not once, but many times. He has constantly opposed my wishes. But I will be merciful. Come and take the file from my hand." She stared at Tatrasmek, trembling with eagerness to seize it, but fearing it was but some cruel jest. She advanced timidly, with a hand extended, and he laughed heartlessly and drew back out of her reach. Even as her lips parted to curse him, some instinct snatched her eyes upward. From the gilded ceiling four jade-hued vessels were falling. She dodged, but they did not strike her. They crashed to the floor about her, forming the four corners of a square. And she screamed and screamed again. For out of each ruin reared the hooded head of a cobra, and one struck at her bare leg. Her convulsive movement to evade it brought her within reach of the one on the other side, and again she had to shift like lightning to avoid the flash of its hideous head. She was caught in a frightful trap. All four serpents were swaying and striking at foot, ankle, calf, knee, thigh, hip, whatever portion of her voluptuous body chanced to be nearest to them, and she could not spring over them or pass between them to safety. She could only whirl and spring aside and twist her body to avoid the strokes, and each time she moved to dodge one snake, the motion brought her within range of another, so that she had to keep shifting with the speed of light. She could move only a short space in any direction, and the fearful hooded crests were menacing her every second. Only a dancer of Zambula could have lived in that grisly square. She became herself a blur of bewildering motion. The heads missed her by hair's breadths, but they missed, as she pitted her twinkling feet, flickering limbs, and perfect eye against the blinding speed of the scaly demons her enemy had conjured out of thin air. Somewhere a thin whining music struck up, mingling with the hissing of the serpents, like an evil night wind blowing through the empty sockets of a skull. Even in the flying speed of her urgent haste she realized that the darting of the serpents was no longer at random. They obeyed the grisly piping of the eerie music. They struck with a horrible rhythm, and perforce her swaying, writhing, spinning body attuned itself to their rhythm. 
her frantic motions melted into the measures of a dance compared to which the most obscene tarantella of Zamora would have seemed sane and restrained. Sick with shame and terror, Sabibi heard the hateful mirth of her merciless tormentor. "'The dance of the cobras, my lovely one!' laughed Tatrasmek. So maidens danced in the sacrifice to Hanuman centuries ago, but never with such beauty and suppleness. Dance, girl, dance! How long can you avoid the fangs of the poison people? Minutes? Hours? You will weary at last. Your swift, sure feet will stumble, your legs falter, your hips slow in their rotations. Then the fangs will begin to sink deep into your ivory flesh." Behind him the curtain shook as if struck by a gust of wind, and Tatrasmek screamed. His eyes dilated, and his hands caught convulsively at the length of bright steel which jutted suddenly from his breast. The music broke off short. The girl swayed dizzily in her dance crying out in dreadful anticipation of the flickering fangs. And then only four wisps of harmless blue smoke curled up from the floor about her, as Tatrasmek sprawled headlong from the divan. Conan came from behind the curtain, wiping his broad blade. Looking through the hangings, he had seen the girl dancing desperately between four swaying spirals of smoke, but he had guessed that their appearance was very different to her. He knew he had killed Tatrasmek. Zabibi sank down on the floor, panting, but even as Conan started toward her she staggered up again, though her legs trembled with exhaustion. "'The file!' she gasped. "'The file!' Tatrasmek still grasped it in his stiffening hand. Ruthlessly she tore it from his locked fingers and then began frantically to ransack his garments. "'What the devil are you looking for?' Conan demanded. "'A ring. He stole it from Alafdal. He must have, while my lover walked in madness through the streets. Sets devils!' She had convinced herself that it was not on the person of Tatrasmek. She began to cast about the chamber tearing up divan covers and hangings and upsetting vessels. She paused and raked a damp lock of hair out of her eyes. "'I forgot Baltior!' "'He's in hell with his neck broken,' Conan assured her. She expressed vindictive gratification at the news, but an instant later swore expressively. "'We can't stay here. It's not many hours until dawn.' Lesser priests are likely to visit the temple at any hour of the night, and if we are discovered here with his corpse, the people would tear us to pieces. The Turanians could not save us." She lifted the bolt on the secret door, and a few moments later they were in the streets and hurrying away from the silent square where brooded the age-old shrine of Hanuman. In a winding street a short distance away, Conan halted and checked his companion with a heavy hand on her naked shoulder. "'Don't forget, there was a price.' "'I have not forgotten,' she twisted free. "'But we must go to—to to Alafdal first. 
A few minutes later the black slave let them through the wicket door. The young Turanian lay upon the divan, his arms and legs bound with heavy velvet ropes. His eyes were open, but they were like those of a mad dog, and foam was thick on his lips. Zabibi shuddered. "'Force his jaws open!' she commanded, and Conan's iron fingers accomplished the task. Zabibi emptied the file down the maniac's gullet. The effect was like magic. Instantly he became quiet. The glare faded from his eyes. He stared up at the girl in a puzzled way, but with recognition and intelligence. Then he fell into a normal slumber. "'When he awakes, he will be quite sane,' she whispered, motioning to the silent slave. With a deep bow he gave into her hands a small leathern bag, and drew about her shoulders a silken cloak. Her manner had subtly changed when she beckoned Conan to follow her out of the chamber. In an arch that opened on the street she turned to him, drawing herself up with a new regality. "'I must now tell you the truth,' she said. "'I am not Zabibi. I am Nafertari. And he is not a Lafdal, a poor captain of the guardsmen. He is Jungar Khan, satrap of Zambula.' Conan made no comment. His scarred, dark countenance was immobile. I lied to you because I dared not divulge the truth to anyone," she said. We were alone when Jongir Khan went mad. None knew of it but myself. Had it been known that the satrap of Zambula was a madman, there would have been instant revolt and rioting, even as Tatras Mech planned, who plotted our destruction. You see now how impossible is the reward for which you hoped? The satrap's mistress is not, cannot be for you. But you shall not go unrewarded. Here is a sack of gold." She gave him the bag she had received from the slave. "'Go now, and when the sun is come up to the palace, I will have Jongir Khan make you captain of his guard. But you will take your orders from me secretly. Your first duty will be to march a squad to the shrine of Hanuman ostensibly to search for clues of the priest's slayer, in reality to search for the star of Korala. It must be hidden there somewhere. When you find it, bring it to me. You have my leave to go now." He nodded, still silent, and strode away. The girl, watching the swing of his broad shoulders, was piqued to note that there was nothing in his bearing to show that he was in any way chagrined or abashed. When he had rounded a corner he glanced back, and then changed his direction and quickened his pace. A few moments later he was in the quarter of the city containing the horse-market. There he smote on a door until from the window above a bearded head was thrust to demand the reason for the disturbance. "'A horse,' demanded Conan, "'the swiftest steed you have.' "'I open no gates at this time of night.' grumbled the horse-trader. Conan rattled his coins. "'Dog's son, knave! Don't you see I'm white and alone? Come down before I smash your door!' Presently on a bay stallion Conan was riding toward the house of Aram Baksh. He turned off the road into the alley that lay between the tavern compound and the date-palm garden, but he did not pause at the gate. 
he rode on to the northeast corner of the wall, then turned and rode along the north wall, to halt within a few paces of the northwest angle. No trees grew near the wall, but there were some low bushes. To one of these he tied his horse, and was about to climb into the saddle again when he heard a low muttering of voices beyond the corner of the wall. Drawing his foot from the stirrup, he stole to the angle and peered around it. Three men were moving down the road toward the palm groves, and from their slouching gait he knew they were negroes. They halted at his low call, bunching themselves as he strode toward them, his sword in his hand. Their eyes gleamed whitely in the starlight. Their brutish lust shone in their ebony faces, but they knew their three cudgels could not prevail against his sword, just as he knew it. "'Where are you going?' he challenged. "'To bid our brothers put out the fire in the pit beyond the groves,' was the sullen guttural reply. Arambaksh promised us a man, but he lied. We found one of our brothers dead in the trap-chamber. We go hungry this night." "'I think not,' smiled Conan. "'Arambaksh will give you a man. Do you see that door?' He pointed to a small iron-bound portal set in the midst of the western wall. "'Wait there. Arambaksh will give you a man.' Backing warily away, until he was out of reach of a sudden bludgeon-blow, he turned and melted around the northwest angle of the wall. Reaching his horse, he paused to ascertain that the blacks were not sneaking after him, and then he climbed into the saddle and stood upright on it, quieting the uneasy steed with a low word. He reached up, grasped the coping of the wall, and drew himself up and over. There he studied the grounds for an instant. The tavern was built in the southwest corner of the enclosure, the remaining space of which was occupied by groves and gardens. He saw no one in the grounds. The tavern was dark and silent, and he knew all the doors and windows were barred and bolted. Conan knew that Arambaksh slept in a chamber that opened into a cypress-bordered path that led to the door in the western wall. Like a shadow, he glided among the trees, and a few moments later he rapped lightly on the chamber door. "'What is it?' asked a rumbling voice within. "'Arambaksh!' hissed Conan. "'The blacks are stealing over the wall!' Almost instantly the door opened, framing the tavern-keeper, naked but for his shirt, with a dagger in his hand. He craned his neck to stare into the Cimmerian's face. What tale is this? You!" Conan's vengeful fingers strangled a yell in his throat. They went to the floor together, and Conan wrenched the dagger from his enemy's hand. The blade glinted in the starlight, and blood spurted. Akram Bash made hideous noises, gasping and gagging on a mouthful of blood. Conan dragged him to his feet, and again the dagger slashed, and most of the curly beard fell to the floor. Still gripping his captive's throat, for a man can scream incoherently even with his tongue slit, Conan dragged him out of the dark chamber and down the cypress-shadowed path to the iron-bound door in the outer wall. With one hand he lifted the bolt and threw the door open, disclosing the three shadowy figures which waited like black vultures outside. 
Into their eager arms Conan thrust the innkeeper. A horrible, blood-choked scream rose from the Zambulan's throat, but there was no response from the silent tavern. The people there were used to screams outside the wall. Aram Baksh fought like a wild man, his distended eyes turned frantically on the Sumerian's face. He found no mercy there. Conan was thinking of the scores of wretches who owed their bloody doom to this man's greed. In glee the negroes dragged him down the road, mocking his frenzied gibberings. How could they recognize Aram Baksh in this half-naked, blood-stained figure, with the grotesquely shorn beard and unintelligible babblings? The sounds of the struggle came back to Conan, standing beside the gate, even after the clump of figures had vanished among the palms. Closing the door behind him, Conan returned to his horse, mounted and turned westward, toward the open desert, swinging wide to skirt the sinister belt of palm groves. As he rode, he drew from his belt a ring in which gleamed a jewel that snarled the starlight in a shimmering iridescence. He held it up to admire it, turning it this way and that. The compact bag of gold pieces clinked gently at his saddle-bow like a promise of the greater riches to come. I wonder what she'd say if she knew I recognized her as Nefertari and him as Jungir Khan the instant I saw them," he mused. I knew the Star of Kerala, too. There'll be a fine scene if she ever guesses that I slipped it off his finger while I was tying him with his sword-belt. But they'll never catch me with the start I'm getting." He glanced back at the shadowy palm-groves, among which a red glare was mounting. A chanting rose to the night, vibrating with savage exultation. And another sound mingled with it, a mad, incoherent screaming, a frenzied gibbering in which no words could be distinguished. The noise followed Conan as he rode westward beneath the paling stars. The End of Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Connor. Hello, I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Cora. We're going to talk about Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard, first published in Weird Tales, November 1935, uh, originally titled The Man-Eaters of Zambula. There's one of those dashed, dashed adjectives, right? <laughs> whoa, whoa, here she comes. Well, I, mean, I, guess, I guess it's actually a noun. The man-eaters of Zambula, um, wh which is a better title? I like the man-eaters of Zambula, but I think um, Shadows in Zambula kind of conforms to that Weird Tales um, title. Mm. Right? Title aesthetic, That's, yeah. It's the X of X or mm. you know, something mm -hmm. like that. So, But here's the problem. Um, if you go with man-eaters, that actually, I guess it has a second meaning. Uh, the, the the lady's a man-eater, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's it works. Yeah, well, yeah it, it, shadows it is so nebulous. <laughs> it doesn't describe, but even you know the cannibals in this story, I wouldn't say are a huge part of the story. They kind of bookend it, mm -hmm. more of a backdrop thing, mm. and they're fun. So it's not a, it's not a super accurate title. No, 
Um, so in a sense, Shadows kind of fits the story a little bit better. But, but I think, okay, uh, here's the first thing I want to say about this story. It is, uh, all in one night, right? It starts at dusk, just before dusk, and then it happens over the evening. Connor gets a little bit of, a little sleep, and then <laughs> somebody comes in, tries to kill him. And then he meets a naked lady, and they go on a little adventure. And then, uh, he st- buys a horse with money, and then he leaves town with the cash, right? So this is a, a similar ending to, not lo- just the cash. Yeah, something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got the magic ring. Yeah, but that's that's for the cash, right? Fortune and glory. Yeah, yeah. He's going to get a room full of gold and, with it. Right? Yeah, and, and more Are we really more. sure that he ever sold the magic ring? Because, um, I mean, uh, we know what it does. It makes a person irresistible to the opposite sex. So I think he was already there. there. He had that. not consider the existence of, of gay people. People and um, Conan uh, is pretty much irresistible. I to think the, he, he has gay. Text. He does acknowledge it, but only for women, right? Yes, lesbians are acknowledged. Although but, uh, there is a quite a sexual sub subtext in uh, and gay subtext in one scene. You guys know which one I'm talking about? The the, the, the his fight. Well, there's the a number of fights. The strangulation. The strangulation. Absolutely. The strangulation. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that guy, Bal Pitor, um, uh, any temple winch can tell you why it's called that. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> basically, a translation is devil dick, right? Oh, because Baal is the devil and Pitor is, um, it's described in the temple as well, in the Hanuman temple. Is basically he's like he's a Peter, <laughs> he's a penis, mm-hmm. right? So he's called, and that's not. He even says that's not my real name. That's just what every tavern wench or uh, no temple wench <laughs> calls me. Um, and then they have even a strangle off. Calls him that. Oh, what's that? They, they, they have a even strangle. his boss calls him that. Yeah, yeah. There you. Um, and like that's pretty gay, right? But it's also. I mean, I probably it's uh, first of all, it's a great scene. They make us hate Balpsir because he he basically now introduces himself by telling, "Oh, I strangled hundreds of people. I started with babies. I I got was taught to strangle people." And he tells, "Oh, I killed all of these people and uh, people to sacrifice them to a god." And yeah, then he tries to strangle to strangle Conan, and yeah, Conan basically anyone who's introduced to strangle babies, yeah, it's uh, rude for them to die. Um, and he dies, which well, is why I love Robert E. Howard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also want to think about, like, so at some point, somebody's going to get upset about uh, there being cannibals in this book. And I just want to say I'm pro-cannibal, so that's cool. Um, I want to get upset about who is put in what position and why, right? So um, there's a lot of mistakes, um, including in the audiobook. Uh, I'm, I might even switch the audiobook for the uh, actual podcast. Mark Nelson uh, has an alternative one, but the one we listen to um, has the the Arambaksh is pronounced wrong. It's he always says Arambakshi, and maybe he knows better than I do. Probably thought of Ralph Bakshi as a cartoonist. Yeah, (laughs) but and there's an exclamation mark a lot, right? Uh, In the opening, and I I don't know if he's perseverating, just screwed it up once and kept going 
you know, he's a sight reader. I don't, maybe he knows better that that should be pronounced with an I, even though there's no I on it. Um, but there's a lot of mistakes, um, in various people's analysis of this story, including like even in the art I sent for the audiobook. Um, the guy Conan's talking to right at the beginning, he's not bearded in the, uh, Savage Sword adaptation. He's bearded in the, mm. the later Ablaze version. But also people say like he's like a bum in the city, but they're actually their companions. He's been in his tent for the last couple of weeks. He's a kind of a, in well, the past he's anyways. A he's a kind of, of the, Bidu, the Bidouins of some kind. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so I think Suagia is what uh, Howard calls these people. He isn't and like of course, a crazy it's kind man. Of obviously that we are in a middle middle eastern setting. Yeah, some people think Suban. it starts off with like a random warning from the street. Like some it's random, not. Like, hey you, prophecy. It's not a no, they're, team, not a they're on a team. That, that guy stole a horse from the satrap and Conan knows about it. Right, so yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like has, right it's before a, the story starts, Conan's like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm staying at this this place exactly. Tonight. I got a room." And the other guy's like, "And the story picks up, he's like, don't stay there." You know, it's yeah, it's clearly some context. I there. think they they it's just cool. bumped into each other, like they're pa- you know, they're in the city, they go to wherever places they go. He goes to the hookah bar, and Conan goes to the gambling den, right? And then they passing through the swordmaker's bazaar. I was like, "Hey, dude, oh, where are you staying?" Is like. Uh, that uh, Aram Baksh guy, he's the cheapest place in town. I already paid. He said, don't go there. Right? Did you read the Yelp reviews? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't well, trust so those, is, right? We know that Conan has plenty of unchronicled adventures. Not quite as many as all the, the pastilles uh, have created, but there are plenty of unchronicled adventures. Adventures hinted at, and he also he tends to hang out and often take over with over random desert tribes or or whatever we see this happening in other stories mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. all the time so it's uh so it's kind of obvious that this is someone he knows from this uh this uh Suagir, whatever the name is is uh is group of, of people and that conan was with them probably took out took them over from whoever they are their real thief was because that's the kind of thing he tends to do and of course, they know each other, which is kind of obvious. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's a completely different genre, but it kind of reminds me of Doctor Who, where the Doctor will wind up in a planet, and she's like, "Oh, I've been here before. I know these people." And we never <laughs> saw that episode, and never will. But yeah, it's clear cool. there's plenty of things that yeah, it's for plot that we never actually see. It's for plot purposes. It's for plot purposes, yeah. and that's really useful and it adds richness. Um, but I found myself wondering what city this was supposed to be. Because I, I want to say it's Constantinople, but it's not. No, 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 it's no, no. It's a small edge of the kingdom kind of city. Right. It's so not I, I, I was thinking more like um, it's farther south, right? Yeah, because it's edge of the where's where's the where's the text? Because uh, they talk about where it is. Um, it's in the on desert. the edge of Turan, the western edge yeah. of Turan. Yeah, it's a small right. border city. It's in the- yeah, yeah, but, but what what is a place like Mosul a- in Iraq or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, um, basically from the geography, and also the it's a reasonably important city, but it's not a but it's not a metropolis like Constantinople or Baghdad or something like some place like that. So I want to think about like uh, the other things that are in here that are offensive. Palmyra, and, that's that's Palmyra. That's yeah, that sounds. Palmyra, that's Palmyra. That's that's actually Palmyra. would make sense. That yeah. it's Palmyra. Yeah. That's a, a good a good and, call. And that kind of ties in with you know with with Howard's. Uh, 
um, Crusader stories. So yeah, so he, he yes, certainly was sort of it. Yes, definitely. Um, so I want to think about like all these characters and what their motivations are. I love, uh, I, I don't think I read this before. I read the comic version, I think. Um, but I really love that at the end we get the reveal that Conan basically recognized her from the, from the start. And he's been in on this game. And so, like, it really undercuts a lot of the uh, assumptions about, <laughs> about Fooling what... the dumb barbarian. Yeah. Well, not this just... is one of the last ones Howard wrote. Yeah, second to last. And it's it also is clearly, to... clearly an older Conan. They don't make a big deal out of it. This is a guy who's been around. He's seen some stuff. This is not the first naked dancing girl to throw herself in his lap and be like, hey, give me a hand with something dangerous. He, he knows what's up. So we've got, um, I want to read this paragraph here because this is full of things that should trigger people. And also I think it, if you read it closely, it, it should uh, alleviate those fears. Um, the babble of myriad tongues smote on the Sumerian's ears as he, as the restless pattern of the Zambulan street weaved about him, cleft now and then by a squad of clattering horsemen, the tall, oh, supple. There it is. Supple warriors of Turan with dark hawk faces, hawk dash faces, clinking metal and curved swords. The throng scampering from under the horse's hooves, for they were the lords of Zambula. But tall, somber Stygians standing back in the shadows glowered darkly, remembering their ancient glories. <laughs> like, over-reading much? You see a guy st- like leaning there, he's probably thinking about his dinner. No, he's glowering about his ancient glories. The hybrid population cared little whether the king who controlled their destinies dwelt in Dark Kemi or the gleaming Agafor. Uh, Jungir Khan ruled Zambula, and men whispered that Nefertari, the satrap's mistress, ruled Jungir Khan. But the people went their way, flaunting their myriad colors in the streets, bargaining, disputing, gambling, swilling, loving, as the people of Zambula had done for all the centuries its towers and minarets have lifted over the sands of the Karum, Karum Moon. Uh, so that's actually, it's, it's cool because he's doing like a little info dump that we need to be surprised later that, oh, the Nefertari is that lady? Oh. But he's also giving us uh, a description of the town, but he's also judging it in a negative way and a positive way. Myriad tongue smote, right? He's being smote, hit. Smote is a negative name. Yeah. yeah. But um, it'd be like going to a bazaar if you're suddenly transported there, Paul, with your camera. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can't show the camera to anybody because uh, it's from another time. Yeah, they'll think I'm a wizard and hang me or burn yeah, me. Yeah, no, they'll eat you. <laughs> well, they'll eat me, yes. Well, in, in Zambula, they'll probably eat you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I so if you were dropped in there, um, you would probably be delighted as all heck, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, but I, it might stink. <laughs> it, it, um, I, I, I've been, I've been in some open sewers, I, right? I, 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 I've been in some third, third, third world places. I mean, Kathmandu and the and Nepal are some. Some of it is not exactly entirely modern. So right. I've been that sort of sort of place. But yes, so it there's is, things is, that smell bad. And loud noises. What he's describing really is loud. a Middle Eastern city in the early 20th century. Yeah. Century okay. with a, and, um, I mean, um, okay, the Ottoman Empire was already gone, 
gone, but um, it's but the multi the Ottoman Empire was very multicultural, and its multiculturalism still lingered on and still lingers on today and continues to cause issues. So, so the, the vocabulary is hybrids. That, that a city in uh, that Palmyra or a city anywhere in Syria, Lebanon, Lebanon, what is modern day Iraq, and so would have looked like this in the early. Also, um, Howard, um, one of the guy who ran the general store in Cross Plains was, uh, for, was an, an Muslim and an immigrant from modern day Lebanon, which would have been the, the, been the Ottoman Empire at the time, mm -hmm. time. And Howard, uh, liked this guy and he, because he was fascinated by all sorts of people who had interesting stories to tell and he often quizzed him on on stories like what it's like and apparently this guy also influenced the crusader stories mm -hmm. stories oh, really? and the stories and so obviously he also in a fantasy version influenced this one mm -hmm. uh, uh, the words also, howard always describes cities kind of negatively whether they're western or yep. eastern or yeah no he's against civilization he thinks it's corrupt which it is <laughs> And, and that's a really what I want to get at. That, that, that's what's cool about this story is that, um, everybody's got their angle, right? The, the, the hotel owner, he wants to get, uh, he wants to subsidize his sales by selling the, the, the stuff of his, uh, also, guests. There was a murder in the, I think, late 19th century, quite H. H. Holmes, yes. a guy in uh, yes. Chicago, who had a murder, who had a hotel and uh, with tricked out rooms and so on. And who Robert E. Howard definitely knew about people. this. Because Howard this would is... have known about this guy. I yes. mean, he was yeah. famous. Um, Robert Block, who was his contemporary and uh, contemporary wrote a story and also used the name H.H. Yeah. Holmes as a pen name. So... Yeah. This is basically kind of like, oh, it's an H.S. Holmes story, only set in the Hyborian age. And, and this isn't the, the first time he wrote about this either. There's a yeah, Solomon Cain story. Similar. Yeah, yeah, Solomon Cain is another Rattle one. Battle of Bones, I think it's called. Yeah. Never mind that the, 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 the inn was the tricked out. That's even older than the H.S. Holmes. It's um, the, the Spessart Inn, which is a story by um, by um, Willem Hauf. Yeah, it's, um, it's a sort of fairy tale about an an inn where the innkeepers basically sell off the, the people about people who stay in the inn to the to robbers. The, robbers and the, yeah, yeah, try, the robbers a, try to trip. either they recruit the people to their, their like join our gang or we'll kill you or if the people are kind of valuable they try to ransom them. There's also a not well it's not accurate to the story but it's a wonderful film adaptation adaptation and um because of course everybody in Germany knows this movie. It's very, very famous. Famous. So of course, <laughs> let me see if it's on YouTube. It used to be the whole thing. So basically, the Spessart Inn is from the mid 19th century, uh, late 19th century. So that's even earlier. Earlier, and this is uh, usually what I think of. Think of because I think oh, it's Spessart Inn. <laughs> so uh, let's see. So is it? Uh... I just want to get to this idea that every character that we meet has a hidden motive, a desire, something they want, um, and how they, they got put into that position. So the cannibals who, you know, sometimes take the title or as man-eaters of Zambula, what do they want? They want meat because it's part of their religion. Uh, but they're slaves. And so they're let out at night like cats, right? <laughs> 
Um, and then they go do their religious stuff, and then they come back, and then we get a little. They also ex- steal from their masters. It's in, it's said that the slaves steal occasionally the steal as they should, the and use it to buy, for example, victims from people like Arambach. As they should, right? Because they're yeah. slaves. <laughs> These are people brought in, uh, and and the reason we're told by our heroine, who's not really that nice, um, is that they're too valuable. We can't kill them off. We need them. They're our property. Also, Conan doesn't really like this. He says, like, why do you even tolerate this? This basically, um, Zambula is dependent on these slaves. They, they can't keep their city running without these people. People, so yeah, they let them eat travelers and, uh, and, uh, street people and anybody who's uh, too stupid to be outside after nightfall. <laughs> and, uh, Nefertari, what does she want? She wants to, utterly rule she wants to secure her position she's mistress that's not wife right mm-hmm. she wants to and she's also afraid to be replaced with someone else <laughs> right and and so thinking about like what happened in her story which it's fairly clear she makes it up on the spot as she's questioned but she shows up in the streets naked now in the adaptation by a blaze she is literally naked in the, I think the, uh, in Weird Tales on the cover, I think she's mostly naked, right? I think she might have a wisp of, wisp of I think of she's cloth. naked on the cover. Her hair is kind of doing some stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Her hair is covering stuff. That's what it yeah. is. Okay. Uh, That's very common. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a standard trope. Um, but in the Savage Sword, which traditionally people think of as a, uh, sort the of R rated. Yeah, the R rated. She's got a loincloth and basically we don't, we never see a nipple, right? So there's a lot of hidden stuff, uh, from her, but I think really it's important to understand other than the titillation, which of course we want in the story. The reason she's naked is because her clothes would give her away, right? She says, I'm just a dancing girl, but she's not. She's the mm-hmm. richest person in, in the city in a certain sense, right? And so in her clothes, sense, yeah. and later on in the story, she gets, um, she gets, well, because she's the mistress. Silken robe. Yeah, she, uh, uh, a slave who's mute, right? Uh, mm-hmm. it gives her a silken robe and we don't get enough from his perspective. Like he should be saying, she's just lied to that guy, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and, and she says, you can trust him. He's not a man eater, right? Well, uh, later on, someone else gets... Can't trust you, yes. Well, so later on, Aram Baksh gets his tongue cut, right? Or his probably cut off. Um, and he's babbling, saying, I'm Aram Baksh, don't eat me! But he can't be understood, and so he gets eaten, right? So there's like a... Uh, the more... I read this story a few times for this podcast and the adaptations. I'm like, the more I look at it, the better put together this story is. It's almost like a, a murder mystery. It's, I guess, got murders in it. But it's it's got, yeah, those scenes where there's this scene and then there's that scene. And so it has, like, a number of set-piece scenes that are going to be really cool. Including, by the way, I, I didn't realize um, that... I, was say, I used to say, you know, there's one really good story other than uh, by Robert E. Howard about... Um, by written by a Conan pastiche person. And I, mm-hmm. I would always say it was uh, The Curse of the Monolith. But fuck, I hadn't read this story, and I just realized Curse of the Monolith just rips off that whole idea and says, I'm going to make that the whole story. 
And then it adds like the magnetic a, table thing. Yeah, the magnetic mm-hmm. table. Really cool. And by the way, Connor, that uh, computer game, the Virgin uh, Conan the Barbarian. Um, oh, it yeah, has yeah. that. <laughs> it has that magnetic table. Um, it is interesting, so, right? Like, yeah, I'm curious about hearing about that game. By the way, I tried to play a bit of it myself. It's pretty bad. But, um, it's pretty bad. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, it's a Conan Exiles. No, no, it's an ancient, ancient. Uh, remember Virgin Games uh, before Virgin became oh, like a worldwide. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Phone company. It's n- 1991, I think, yeah. it was when it came out. Yeah, it's DOS. It already was everything in the 1990s, but it was mostly in the UK. The funny yes. thing was that they had a bridal store in central London called Wordland Bride. Why is Wordland running a, a bridal store? Are they just running it because they can have this cool name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, live out the fantasy. There's a lot of subtext in calling your bridal store virgin. It, yeah, I mean, just calling were, anything it was, it was virgin. Called virgin bride. It was so. It was so hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had this. So yeah, the game record, isn't amazing. It, it had a. Yeah. It had a um a bug in it for me. So when I played it originally, like I could only get to a certain point, and then the game would crash. And it was mm-hmm. for DOS, although you used a mouse. So. Yeah, it's not a great game, um, but it is kind of a pastiche of what we see in the Conan movie, uh, the first Conan the Barbarian movie, and what's in the comics. And whenever we go to one of the cities that's mentioned, somebody did some research, read the stories, and there was a magnetic table. I think it might have been <laughs> not a table, but there was something magnetic that if you went near you, you're, you'd lose because you'd lose your sword. Although they just have a strangle off in the book, right? And he doesn't actually use the sword that much, except on uh, the one dude. Oh no, no, he uses it to to bang out the secret door. Yeah, which is not actually what swords are supposed to be for. Yeah, it's the wrong tool for the job, Conan. It's the only thing he has, though, (laughs) other than his hands. And he uses his hands, you know, against the strength, against the. and he, also, and he also uses his hands to uh, slip that ring off the finger while he's tying up uh, the the satrap, right? Yep. Which we never see, and he doesn't tell us until the end. So it's it's very well put together. I. But that's I mean, um, Nafatari or Sabibi, whatever you want to call her, she uh, she's obviously looking for something and surprised not to see it because Conan has already stolen it. Mm-hmm. It's so Her it's a murder mystery is a good comparison. It's very, very well put together. It's very also very well a put together. Story. And it has but there's a lot happening and going on in the story. Lots of characters, lots of plots, everybody has their own agenda. And what 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 lots lots of world building and setting. I I, I thought I had not read the story before, but this is, might be one of the first Conan stories I ever read because it's like, okay, I remember to say, Oh yeah, the strangle, that's right. And he, and when, when he had the cell, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. He had the ring all along. It's like, I've read this before. It, it, it all came, came back to me in a flash. So I thought this was a story new to me. But no, it's actually, I think it was one of the first Conan stories I actually ever read. But as was pointed out, it's like one of the last he wrote, which is kind of ironic. But he didn't write all that many to begin with. But yeah, well, there's like 30 or so, I think. Sounds about right. So, um, so yeah, that so. many. So, um, uh, I came across an article, and I know other people have also come across articles about this. This, uh, I think, was was a Cora. You sent me one by um, the one by Charles Saunders, yes, which Saunders, mentions right. the stories and a couple of hours. 
Right. Um, and uh, there were some quibbles I had about some of the stuff, but it mostly wasn't about the story particularly. Um, cause he, he covers all the weird tales authors basically. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, Saunders uh, basically covers all of salt and saucer, salt and sorcery. He would have, he was a, f- a fan, but he was also a black man. And, um, let's just say it's not quite so easy to read some of these stories as a black person. Interesting. I think that Saunders and Howard, if they had ever gotten around to meeting, which they didn't do because, um, Howard was dead by the time Saunders he was born in the forties sometime. So he was, uh, so Howard was already dead. But if they had ever met, they probably would have gotten along because, hey, they both wrote and liked sort and sorcery. They both, uh, they both, um, Howard was actually quite fascinated by Af- Africa. Of course, as was Saunders, only that Saunders did better research and also probably had more access to research material. And, uh, they were both boxing fans. So I'm pretty sure they would have gotten along just swimmingly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, that website, it doesn't allow you to like copy and paste um, text. Yeah, it's, it's a bad website. Bad, it's a bad, bad it's, design. It's the only um, online copy of this essay from the 70s that exists mm-hmm. at all. There is no other. I've never found another copy online. Online, Perhaps in e-fanzines or something. Has, it's, has it's, a, it's also very general. So it's not super specific for this story although he does quote from the man eaters and uh, yeah he mentions it but it's in general about some of the race Howard issues with old, uh, with old weird Black tales and, Smith. Uh, yeah but um uh, there is another website that i went to that i i quite like it's called blackgate i'm sure oh, some people yeah, are familiar I, I, with oh, it oh yes yes blackgate oh, is yes. great um, and a guy named Bob Byrne wrote an article about this, and I'll just read the opening. It's uh, called Hither Came Conan, Steve H. Silver on Maneaters of Zambula. Okay, Stephen H. Silver is the guy who yeah. wrote it. Bob yes, Byrne yes, yes, is yes, the guy Stephen who Silver's posted it. Yes, Stephen Silver. Uh, yeah, I, think they did a whole, I think they did all of the Conan yes, stories they for did. this project. It was a few years ago. I think they won the Robert Howard Award. Let me yeah. uh, read it here. Why Maneaters of Zambula is the best story of all time, with the possible exception of Shadows of Zambula, which is the same story, so it really is the best of all time. <laughs> That's the sub-headline. Uh, Maneaters of Zambula is without doubt the best and most quintessential story about Conan the Barbarian written by Robert E. Howard. Is that defensible? I think it's defensible. Wow. This is a really mm. strong story. It's it really is, it is strong. It is strong. It's, it's, it's this I, I, to me is the most quintessential Conan story. It's the most Conan of the Conan story. That's interesting. And since stories by other authors don't count, with the one exception noted below, that means that Maneaters of Zambula is the best Conan the Barbarian story ever written. I suppose a case could be made that Shadows of Zambula is better than Conan the Barbarian, is a better Conan the Barbarian story, but since only the difference between these two stories is the replacement of the phrase Maneaters with Shadows, I'd be willing to concede the point. Howard first published Man Eaters, blah, 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 blah. So what he does is he goes on to defend this concept that this is the best story of all time. And the thing is, is he makes, you know, some compelling points here and there. Um, But ultimately, you have to realize that this is part of a contest they're having, (laughs) which is everybody is assigned a story and they have to say it's the best of all time. And so when you're arguing for something like that, I mean, I was thinking, this is a good story, absolutely. I've read worse stories by Robert E. Howard that are uh, indefensible. But a lot of people were worried about getting this one. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the comments and reading the other posts, right? Um, but everyone 
really didn't want to get a veil of lost women, which I think yeah. is a terrific <laughs> story uh, with some uh, issues. It has yeah. some some good stuff, but it's it's. Op- I mean, also it was not published during his lifetime. We have no record if he even submitted it. Yeah. we don't know. But, no, but as a story, unfinished. Yeah. It has some good stuff. But as a story, um, you know, this one is much better put together. It has it's smoother. It's uh, maybe more polished and a bunch of other things. But Veil of Lost Women has a higher high it within it. And when I'm thinking about like what makes the best Conan story of all time, this isn't even close. Like Red Nails, I think is better, but it's not the best. I think there's other ones that are like pretty down. Like I, I, I basically can't think of one that's better than Queen of the Black Coast. Definitely, um, but that's because top, I would say it's in the top half, but it's not the best of all time. It's because of the themes, right? It's because of what uh, what happens, and it's not the polish of the writing exactly. And this is really a cool uh, idea. Is thinking it's it's not you get better with skill and you become more refined and. You know, you're, no grammar mistakes or even like word choices. It's like sometimes when you deal with a mighty theme, uh, it becomes greater than it could be just if you're writing with a lesser theme. And so the theme in here is, I think, strong, but it, it ultimately doesn't all come together with like, unless your thesis is that, uh, what you need to do in life is just uh, be the smartest man in the room and have strong hands, which I think is what we got. Because ultimately, he doesn't, you know, free the slaves or help the rebellion. He gets revenge on the guy who wanted to eat, you know, have him eaten. And he tricks a girl who, who's offering sex. Um, but he knew that she wasn't going to give it to him the whole time, right? This, this story undercuts our expectations and then co- goes away with a bag of cash. And it's almost like, Rowdy Howard's getting tired of writing Conan, and he says, I got away with a bag of cash. What do you want from me? I got the cover. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I think that it isn't the mighty themes that we see in earlier stories, and yet Red Nails is a pretty amazing finish. Red Nails came after, and that's right. one of the best. <laughs> and it is, it is a pretty amazing finish. But notice in Red Nails, we have this really interesting thesis in the center, which is that we've got a city... That's, you know, degenerated, which is a theme he's always on, but they used to be high and now they're low. And we've seen this in other stories, but they also had like fucking laser beams and, and, yeah. you know, their I weird mean, insular culture, magnets. right? These people have magnets. Yeah. Uh, okay. Magnets are actually old, but, um, since apparently, apparently this appears to be some kind of uh, electrical magnet since uh, he can switch it on and off. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little unclear. The, the magic in here is pretty. Yeah. Illusory. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the magic, magic in the Conan like, stories is actually science. Yeah, it's, it's like, like super the, science. the laser beams and the radium, radium gems in, in Red Nails. Okay, I mean, the which explains basically why these people are all degenerated. They're probably all constantly, they're probably they're constantly they exposed to radioactivity. Yeah, from the, the, house is all, the, the, the priest is all gadgets and science. Yeah. But we have. story. Yeah, feels, go for it, Connor. It feels like um, if you compare it to like Red Nails or something, it feels a bit similar, but everything's toned down. Yes. Right? Like that science or magic aspect with the magnetic table, it's just not quite as interesting as the the laser beam and the wand, right? Mm-hmm. Or the city is sort of a little bit degenerate in a sense, like, but... Um, well, cannibal slaves, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. nowhere near in Red Nails. So 
it has it has those things, but it's it's almost like the colors are a little bit more muted than other Conan mm-hmm. stories. But sometimes you sometimes you don't need the oversaturation of colors. I appreciate the kind of I appreciate the setting a lot. I really like the city because it make me think of Palmyra and desert cities and and um, the whole idea of entrepose and cultures meeting and clashing and poor Conan wanders into this without much money and. And he, he walks out. He walks. He gambled out. it away, man. He knew what he was doing. He <laughs> yeah, says, "I'm so going to go there walks, and lose all my money." And he walks away with it. Walks away with the cash, having shown that you said it before. Like, it's like not only brawn, but also smarts and skill. I mean, this is a this is a complete Conan. I mean, you, you get you, the popular culture awfully just thinks of Conan as a stupid brute, which I know since we've all read a bunch of Conan stories, we know that's not true. But here we see it. In full relief that no, Corn is not dumb at all. He'll play dumb. He'll he'll let people think he's dumb and then just subvert your expectations. Like no, he knew what was going on all yeah. the time. I it's love that. A lot of the early subversion. stories, he's he's fresh to civilization though. He's easily kind of tricked because he doesn't know what's go- he doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is clearly a Conan who's been around the block. This is a Conan yeah. who, who's seen some things. And, he recognizes that trap immediately. And, 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 and as I've gotten older as a reader. And as a person, I think, yeah, I, I appreciate that more wily sort of Conan that not 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 the not the first 20 year old barbarian, but someone someone who has uh, miles under his belt and no is starting to get a sense of he doesn't quite know he's going to go for the kingship of Aquilonia yet. But he's he's on that road there. And at, at the end of the story, he's clearly marching down that path. And I appreciate that. I this think- is also a Conan who is confident enough in himself that when the professional strangler grabs his neck, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't dodge. He just grabs the other guy's neck back and strangles him to death. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a pretty intense scene. It's also, it's Conan. What we have here is Conan, the con artist. We also have him in Heroes of Gwalua, Gwa- mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is also from the same period. I think it, uh, I think it was written shortly before this one. This one, so it's from the late another late period Conan story. Story that's actually where Conan is actually running the con. Here, Conan isn't really running the con. Uh, con he stumbles into somebody else's con, namely Nafatari's con, con and Totramest, and um, deals with a with a thing and yeah, profits himself by nabbing a bag of cash and a magical jewel. <laughs> So I find kind of interesting that uh, Jewels of uh, I can I never pronounce Gwalur. it. Gwalur. Yeah, Gwalur. Gwalur. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's the only other story that mentions the Pelitishim. Pelitishim, yeah. The, uh, the mm-hmm. mummy, yeah. the old guy who was dead before oh. the story started. Mm. In oh, yeah. this, his people are the mercenaries that guard the city. Right, the right. City guard. But they're never really mentioned again. You're never really sure where they're from. Just these guys who aren't from here. <laughs> the only two stories that mention those people. Yeah. It's 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 very interesting. He he's very consistent of create coming up with these things and and then you so Nefertari, you know that name sounds a lot like Nefertiti, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously she's not that, but Jungir Khan, Khan means king, hint, right? hint, hinted to be Stydlian, which is of course which makes sense because Stydia is Egypt mm-hmm. in the Hyborian age. Mm-hmm. She worships that. And she, yeah. I think she, she was so, upset at any rate. What, what's cool is there's so many gods in here. The Hanuman, the monkey god, right? He's in there yeah. and he's on the great, I, I don't, I think I included it in the PDF for the, uh, the Savage Sword. He's on the cover there, right? And he's like, ooh, although Nefer, Nefertari's got clothes on and she's blonde, so that's wrong. But, yeah. but, but the, yeah. the scary monkey god never shows up other than his, his statue. 
but we have his representative who is uh the guy who does the sacrifices in the temple and then we have his boss who's like uh lusting after our girl but we're, there's a number of other gods yog right the the dafari uh slave god and krom's mentioned i think I think Krom's yeah, mentioned. Krom's mentioned. And they mentioned, was it Ehrlich, the god yep, of Iranian? Exactly. And so uh, there's all these competing uh, ideologies in a certain sense, right? And we don't know what Krom is really about other than, you know, he's something to swear, swear with. But all the other ones have, like, quite uh, strong demands. And none of them seem to promote human happiness, <laughs> which is basically they all just want sacrifices yes and <laughs> and and one of those uh, may, maybe that's what Krom demands is that you go to the casino and lose all, lose all your cash Krom <laughs> doesn't demand anything he just wants he sits on a mountain uh, it's, it's explained somewhere that Krom sits on his mountain and yeah. wants to be just wants to be left alone <laughs> and he gives every man like the strength of his hands and that's it sits right. out in the world good luck you got what you got? Yeah. Krom go is it. a Krom is a god for atheists because yeah. he wants nothing to do with you. He wants to be left alone and please don't don't bother him. So he's an ideal mm-hmm. god for atheists. And also it's sort of uh it's cosmicism without uh reference to the cosmic because in an indifferent universe your god doesn't care about you even if he exists, right? Prayer? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you pray to a guy who's not listening? But all the other ones demand sacrifices, but they use it for, for their own, uh, you know, thing. What I want to think, I kept thinking about, I wish Evan had been here because I want to think about what the slaves are thinking. The slaves are thinking it, it is what I'm thinking is it fucking sucks to be a slave. Uh, but we get to have our religion. And if that means eating these foreign bastards who are enslaving us, all the better. And so, like, if if uh, uh, our hotel owner had been able to um, say, hey, hey, I'm the guy who always gives you uh, uh, or sells you bodies to eat, um, won't you, won't you uh, honor our deal? I would think that they would want to, um, like, not honor the deal because they do no. want a revolt, <laughs> right? And it's almost like it's a way of getting oh, they're, back. They're explicitly not eating the people who hold them captive because the well, city wouldn't stand for that. Right. They can't eat the citizens. They eat the, the, yeah. you know, the desert people who come in. Right. The wanderers, the, the outcasts. If they eat the citizens and the, the guards and, and the mercenaries will kill them off. And they know that. So they don't, they leave the citizens alone. But and they're they, afraid. Uh, the guards are afraid. The Palishtim yeah, keep the their shields on their back because they don't want to get stabbed I mean, in the yeah. back. Nefertari is afraid, uh, and she's the most powerful woman in the city. <laughs> I, I want to go back to that center of the story, too, that when they go into ha- uh, uh, Hanuman's temple, it's the only, mm-hmm. and they have a little conversation about, you know, what it looks like and, and such. There's quite elaborate detail there. It's, it is, I think, the heart of the story. Um, it's got marble walls, and on the outside, um, it's got these marble walls, and then we go through, but there's no gate, right? They don't close it at night, and the explanation is no one would go in there at night, uh, including, I guess, the cannibals. Everywhere else, the city is not walled. It's not a walled city, right? Each building has its own wall. 
And yet when they goes in there, there's a bunch of doors and it's described as like horns, uh, the passageways going around and Conan tries one of the uh, a nice little Agatha Christie sort of scene uh, where he tries one of the door handles and he can feel with his native senses, his barbarian senses that the door has been touched recently, right? Because it's warm. And it's like, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> he has a really high perception tech. Yeah. And he's in, he, uh, one of the articles I read, um, I think I sent it to Cora. I don't know. Maybe or Connor. I think it was Connor. Um, he sent it to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we are sort of all over the place, but anyways, uh, I sent, uh, the one I sent to Connor said the reason he, he has such good, uh, hand, uh, hand sensing is cause he has a, he's a meat eater. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's something to that, right? Like, but he's a meat eater, but not a human meat eater, but he also gives those guys, he gives that guy to the meat eaters to get revenge. So he is, in a certain sense, a man-eater too, right? He kills a lot of people. But when we go into this temple, uh, he, he can go left or right. He, he, she says there's a secret door here and then somebody reaches out from behind the secret door with a giant hand and pulls her in and Conan can't, can't get through. So he has to go through this little maze and then he finds our guy sitting on a, a divan and they have their little, uh, back and forth which includes illusions and stuff like that but there's like i think there's something uh a little bit of like the odyssey uh in here in that it's about the guest host relationship and if you think about what's going on in the story um that's kind of uh they that i i don't know if you guys have read the odyssey recently <laughs> but this is like a really big theme I did, but it was a long time ago <laughs> yeah so it's a really big theme in the odyssey is you, you there's a scene they go somewhere and or odysseus goes somewhere and uh the, they have a bad relationship with the guest or the host so yeah, yeah, guest rules and rules of uh, right rules of hosting guests are very important in the Aussie. When they get bro- yes. broken, bad things happen. And and it's in every it's it's in every little one of the adventures, right? So if you think of the Cyclops, he goes in. They the house is empty, so they go in and they start eating, right? And then the host comes home and says, "What the hell are you doing in my house?" And then he closes the door and won't let them out, right? And then they have to sneak their way out. Um, but if he goes to the Isle of, um, what's us? Uh, uh, Cersei, there's another one. Um, Cersei yep. is, uh, oh, she's very welcoming, but she turns the men into pigs. And when the way to get out of this is to put a knife to her throat and say, turn my men not into pigs. And, you know, then they have a nice relationship. And every time that happens in the Odyssey, it's like a reinforcement of this value system, which is not good or evil. Value it's, system. It's, just a, yeah, yeah, it's, just it's a, a it's how to be in a in a person's space, yeah. right? In, in this in this society, in this culture, yeah. And like, that's what we have here. We've got a, a a culture where everybody. This city's been taken by many different uh, owners over the years. The current guy doesn't have enough power to to put down the uh, the uh, slaves who are too valuable. And then there's a rival in the form of the Hanuman priest. Right. And then we've got a bunch of different forces where, you know, you go into somebody's house and he says, look, this door is barred from 
The inside, you're going to be safe. Nope, you're not going to be safe. And then there's another place he goes to where the door is open. The gate is open. You don't have to climb over the wall. And then what, what do we see at the end is that pit. Outside the city, the slaves can leave the city. Why don't mm-hmm. they go home? Because the whole thing is that it's surrounded by desert. They can't leave. They'll die. Right? So I think he's ta- uh, Howard has taken in all this stuff, right, from all his literature that he's read. And he's just got an innate sense of this. And then he's done a lot of writing. I think that's why this story is so good is there's so many cool themes going on. And his thesis isn't very strong. It's just like, imagine this. And we do. But there isn't like a, like, as in Red Nails, like, uh, there's a little bit of sexual stuff at the beginning, and then we've got the dragon fight, and then we, we get to the city, and then we're stuck in somebody else's, like, feud. And then they just have to get through the dungeon. <laughs> and then they ride off with a bag of cash, and, uh, you know, gonna have more adventures, but they never do, right? So that one has got like a central core that makes you think, wow, amazing. He's really saying something here. He's not saying anything here, really, other than look at this. And we do. And we go, wow. But who, who else can do that? I don't, I don't know anybody else who can do that with this material, right? It, it, it's rich. Now I'm going to, I'm going to harp on role playing things because I put in the chat a map from the Conan RPG. I want to read this mm. paragraph about Zambula mm. that they have in the book. On its surface, the western outpost city of Zambula appears to have completely shaken off its Stygian origins, or so the hopefuls tell themselves. Now absorbed into the expanding empire of Turan, Zambula is a dark, mysterious, and dangerous place, especially for the foreigners that regularly disappear amid treachery, many victims of night stalking Dafari cannibals. People of every race and nation mix here among, amid colorful riches and deadly secrets, beckoning the adventurous. Jungir Khan rules since the death of his father, Akhtar, but the streets whisper that the young Khan's mistress, Nefer, Nefertiti, holds his strings. High priest Torsamuk, a devout child of Hansaman, covetously eyes the young Khan's tenuous grasp on power. Yep. So it's it's like this is a city of adventure. Maybe it's maybe why this why it's another reason why the story appeals to me. It's like I could definitely set a role playing scenario in this city or a XP of this city where the characters have wound up in the city and wind up tangling with with uh with the plots and cannibals and things going on. This I wouldn't even necessarily even need to bring them all the way up to uh to Jungir Khan's level. Oh, but there's there's plenty of intrigue and adventure to be had in this city. And Conan goes through it all and escapes and gets the money. So it's like, what's not to love? I, I was you thinking, beat the level. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking compared to Shadazar, right? Another city, um, which mm-hmm. is uh, Shadazar the Wicked, right? And that one makes you think of, ooh, it's got a spider god at the center of it or something like that, right? Um, but actually, um, as I read more Conan stories, I realize, oh, um, the guy who I guess it's John Milius, um, who wrote the Conan movie. He stole from every story to make his story, and and it's really good. Obviously, every best it is. But but he like there's something he stole from this one, which you know I, I never thought of before. And that is, um, if you remember in Shadazar, I think it is in in the Conan movie. Um, there's this set temple, and mm-hmm. 
the king of that city doesn't like that these things are springing up in all the cities nearby, right? This religion's on the rise. Mm -hmm. And so there's a power struggle between these two groups. And he's like, I'm, I salute you for stealing and killing that snake, stealing from that uh, snake temple and killing that snake. I got a job for you, which is go get my daughter, right? And that's kind of like what we have here. They, obviously that's also in uh, another Conan story as well. But, but when he goes in that one, he doesn't find a snake. He finds an elephant, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole different story. Um, a whole different feel, but he sort of combines those two things where you, you sneak into the temple and, uh, the king, or in this case, the Khan of the city, the satrap is going to be happy, says our, uh, mistress to the satrap after her, her boyfriend is uh, going to come out of his, his rage induced coma, <laughs> which I got to make him uh, captain of the guard. Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a job, right? But, um, what's interesting is she's, she's also trying to rule him. She dosed him. Yeah. She's bad. Yeah. She, everybody yeah, oh, here yes. is, is oh, bad, yes. right? We think of her as like, well, she's, she's just a woman naked in the city. She, she has to use her feminine wiles and be slightly deceiving. And that's the way she's thinking of it, right? She's saying, I'm sorry I lied to you, but I'm not really. Uh, Zabibi. <laughs> and Conan, uh, the way it's, uh, rereading it, the way it's, it reads, Conan doesn't react. And that's because Conan doesn't ever lie in the story. He never says, um, uh, okay, and then lies. He just, like, doesn't say things, right? But and- Conan, Almost never lies anyway. That's that's he's, actually Conan part is of not the. Someone who lies. That's that's the thing is some in some of the reviews they talk about him not being chivalrous. How can you be chivalrous when nobody has any honor <laughs> and they're all trying to cheat you all the time? The only way to also, do that he, is to not does lie. Say, he does save her from the cannibals. Otherwise, the cannibals would have eaten her. <laughs> he, oh, he, well, and probably done other interesting things to the naked woman before that. <laughs> well, it depends if they found out who she was, right? Um, I mean, they were stealing her, so um, they would be definitely be in trouble if they ate the mistress. But on the other hand, yeah. <laughs> that's part of the part of the scheme is to supplant the satrap. And the only thing we know about him uh, is that he's ruled by his mistress, and that he went wild uh, and tore her clothes off so just like in the opening scene where we find out uh there's this guy we think of as a street bum uh prophesying doom he's not a street bum we find out at the end no they're friends or at least they're companions and at one point he has his hand on conan's arm and we get the description of his nails and it's it's i think it's almost like he's he's setting it a, a setting us up to think that they're strangers and that this is like a crazy, you know, crazy man who's prophesized doom. He is, but he's speaking to him as a brother, and that comes at the end. And so it's it's like a mini version of the whole of the whole piece. This is why Robert E. Howard's so good. Is like his instinct for story is seemingly better than pretty much anybody I've ever seen. The only, you know, there are people who write good novels, but for for a story. I mean, there's not a missed thing. And 
all the things that seem like it's a bit weird, it's because he's writing for a particular market and he has to do those things, right? Like the chapters and the headings and the, okay, I got to have the nude scene, right? Because <laughs> that doesn't need to be there for the, he, for the story. Has, it's fun. He has the um, typical scene, like you're talking about the scenes that he has to have. Mm-hmm. There's almost always the one where the girl is threatened by the magician or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Getting in this case, or... with this, yeah, this cobra. I think is it in the Jewels of Guala that this a very similar scene also happens with like this ancient mummy yep. who's come back to life, or is that people of the black circle? Uh, I think that's uh, well, people black of the black circle. circle. Is the, yeah, the yeah, ancient wizard. There's a mummy, but he doesn't do anything in in the uh, Teeth of Guala. But there is, but there is the scene where she's pretending to be a statue, right? Um, and then there's a clothes clothes swap. But he he has to have a nude scene, right, in every story, a whipping scene or something, because he won't get the cover. If he doesn't get the cover, he doesn't get the bonus, and he needs to sell the story generally. So he has to have a bunch of things like magic, which I don't think Robert E. Howard is interested in magic at all, right? Because he he doesn't write. Yeah, go for it. Oh, whenever he introduces it, he always ends up kind of downplaying it. Yeah, and and not now of the dragon. Yeah, the table. Most of the wizards he runs into are charlatans or whatever. Yeah. Power of the Dragon. That guy is scary. But that's very Mm. early as well, right? I think we get. I mean. That's mid to late hour, right? I don't know. It's fairly late. I think it's the second half. Okay. It was one of the latest published, but it was written earlier. It was published after this one, but written earlier. But But it's early in the Conan series, right? No, he's a king. That's one of the last ones. He's a king. It's right. No, 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 but written first. I don't think it was. No, no, that was the Scarlet's, Phoenix on the Sword okay. and the Scarlet Citadel. The, okay. the other two King stories are very early. All right. I don't know. Yeah, Hour of the Dragon. That's the one where they bring the guy back to life after 2,000 years. Mm, I haven't read it. Yes, yeah. And they he's a mummy. He's a literal mummy in a tomb, and they bring him up, and they, they resurrect him. And everyone, like all these people who deal with wizards on a regular basis, the noblemen, the kings, like all these cities have creepy wizards in them. and They know these guys. <laughs> They are freaked out by this guy. He is terrible. Because he's the legit deal. Yeah. As opposed to all thing. the he's other guys. Trickster. He's not using yeah. magnets and powders. Yeah. John D. Yeah, is crying like on the, his mirror. In, in that particular story, I like that they um they resurrect him and they almost immediately realize, oh, they really they fucked up. Is that true with any resurrection story? The resurrect you you resurrect the mummy, it turned out to be a bad plan. <laughs> uh hey, that's how Christianity started, bud. <laughs> oh, ow! <laughs> Couldn't be too bad. <laughs> he, he was not fresh enough. <laughs> That's a different story. No, but he's not resurrected by others. He resurrects himself. That's a different oh, okay, thing. Okay, okay. I mean, if you resurrect yourself, that's oh wait, Jewel of five. Seven Stars is a self-resurrection too. Jewel oh. Seven Stars by uh, Oh, you're right, Bram Stoker. That was a good, a great story too. Um, so yeah, I I think this is a pretty damn good story. Uh, and the more you look at it, the more you appreciate what, what he's really done. Um, I wasn't too, I wasn't too bad. I was too down on the man eaters of Zambula adaptation for, uh, A-Blaze. What do you guys think of it? I, I, I don't have a comic reader on this new computer, so I wasn't able to look at it. Oh, well. I thought it did a very nice job adapting the story, which is not too hard to do. It's not a very long story. No, it's a very short. Two comics. They, They put basically the whole thing in the comic. Um, they left uh, Nefertiti dan- uh, naked the whole story. Yep. 
But yeah, but the, those are French comics. It's like, perfectly normal. Yeah, the art is maybe yeah. not the best. Um, but he did have a our our guy at the beginning had a beard, a black beard, like he's supposed to. Um, and most uh, of those portrayed very good. They're the Monkey God Temple, Hamanon. Yeah, wonderfully portrayed. Um, I think I think I there's like a lot of really cool images, still images, you know, or not still images, I guess, um, undialogued images, undialogued pages, where you just see the fight about to happen, right? Him sneaking into the temple sort of thing. Maybe the coloring and the art is weird, but um, I think the but story... The girl remind me of uh, Aeon Flux, that, that <laughs> 90s cartoon. Yeah, the, she just had a weird line. Yeah, her body's distorted. Yeah, it was... Everyone else looked... You know, like a comic book, but they looked like normal people. And she, like, I, I'd already read the story, but if she had turned out to be undead or something, but or a vampire mm. by the end of the story, it would not have come out of left field. She just looked off the whole book. Yeah, well, she's she's uh, completely naked. It, it is interesting to 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 actually depict it because even having a little loincloth and you know hiding boobs by pushing up against somebody, it it changes the. I think it, in the story it says as the naked as the day she was born, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, the thing though is a person naked in a s- unwalled city r- running in the streets from cannibals, you can't really be more exposed than that, right? And then having her for most of the story be completely naked. Even is, though she went back to her house. Well, she goes back to, yeah. well, she, yeah. But uh, then she puts on a robe, right? Does when, she? When uh, when she goes into her well, when she goes into her house uh, at the at the end, at the end, she does. Yes, but halfway through, she drops her lover off at her house, gives him to the mute slave. Yeah, like all right, now I, I was go I was wondering a bit about that, and I was thinking, um, is it because every piece of clothing she has would give away what who she is? So she's Maybe. trying to. I, I, don't, I don't think she ever I dresses think it's down. just uh, yeah. giving Margaret Brundage a chance to draw some more, <laughs> more pictures of naked women. Because yeah. if she is naked for most of the story, then there's plenty of scenes. Otherwise, for example, the actual cover with the cobras wouldn't have, have worked because she wouldn't have been naked in the scene. I think he I mean, probably going to say that as a dancer, Zambula being naked is not yeah. unusual for her. It might just be that that's that's how she normally dresses when she's out and about. Yeah. Well, no, not probably. Not if she's going to keep that very pale skin <laughs> that we see in the comic. Fair point. Um, uh, how but, it doesn't. I mean, think of Belit. Uh, he's well, he's not that pale, but he's pale skinned and yeah, she no, runs she's, around. She's her pirate ship, topless, and only wearing a girdle because she has to put her sword somewhere, which <laughs> is a uh, is like okay. Obviously, Howard has never been on a, no, on a sailing ship. He, he no, doesn't care. He doesn't no, care. He wants her to be pale because pale is beauty. Yeah. Fair and beauty oh. go together, right? But the guy grew up in Texas. He knew that people he, got absolutely. Yeah, but he would have known, I think, that people that if you you run around, especially, I mean, every woman <laughs> woman who eats that one says, "Yeah, okay, sure." She, I don't think. Going, I don't think if you're around a pirate ship without with. I think if you're pirating. Um, and you're attacking another ship naked? That's probably not a wise idea, right? I mean, uh, she's probably trying to shock the other guys, the guys by flashing them, but it's still weird. You yeah, know what it is? Uh, it's because well, it's... she's acting as a goddess. She's yes. setting herself apart from yeah. the crew. 
and but She's also worshipped by her crew. It's, but also, it's the it's the color distinction, right? Her crew is the darkest black, right? Not just because they're blacks, but also because they're out on the pirate seas. And then we've mm-hmm. got this woman with the palest of pale skins, yeah. with black she hair. She probably has some very good, uh, some very good sunscreen. <laughs> Yeah. You're trying to make it make I sense, mean, Cora. It doesn't make sense. Sunscreen. It's not uh, back they had at- early early sunscreen, but yes, uh, let's just say every woman who reads it, uh, oh yes, right. she she's she not, had a magic toe ring anything. that prevents she's just walking around with her breasts bobbing on a pirate ship. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it, that's the that's the image we're supposed to go with, and I'll, I'll accept it. Here, at least, it's at night. <laughs> They're running around a desert city at night. Um, and hiding, uh, there is the sh- yeah, scene where they hide from the police. That, uh, that, uh, that, uh, the satraps tore her clothes off when he, right. when he went mad and attacked her. Um, and that actually, that scene is really well depicted in the, in the comic book because when we see the guy's eyes, he is wild. He's a wild man. And I, I want, I want to contrast that again with Conan, who has this lady come up to him, you know, touch him. Uh, t- Conan gets a feel of her as well. But he is resisting uh, what everybody else wants to do, which is eat her, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, we're getting that one again. Okay, um, so there there is this like playing off each other. There's all sorts of lascivious men in this story, but she's the one who dosed her her uh, master. Um, and and then there's the 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 uh, priest. Who is like, I want you to be mine and I want to take your, your boyfriend's power. And, and then there's literally guys who are eating each other. But at the very beginning, we've got a friend who says, look, bud, don't go to that place. And it, he sounds like a crazy man in the same way that we think of a, a man who drinks too much is crazy. Um, and that is sort of the scene we get with him, you know, beating, be, uh, not beating, I guess, um, tearing her clothes off, which presumably just happened minutes ago while Conan was um, be about to be killed in his own bed, right? Or dragged away from his own bed. C- cudgeled. Right? <laughs> but he... Of uh, course, he, I, I mean, naked women uh, running into Conan on the street and begging for help, this is not the first time this happens to him. It happens to him in Black Colossus, too. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, yeah. It's a nice theme. <laughs> it doesn't happen that much around here, but I can tell you it's a nice theme. It works well in the sense of setting up the story because Conan's immediately going to be interested in what's going on here, right? As is the and reader. Introduces, yeah. He actually puts exactly. off his vengeance against the innkeeper for you know the whole book. He's like, I'm going to kill this guy immediately. He's like, oh, wait, no, naked woman. Yeah, All right, I got, I got a side story here. I got, <laughs> right, got a side story. You have to have your priorities straight. Yeah. And if you're calling a naked woman, woman in distress is Vengeance uh, can wait a few hours. Which is more important than killing the evil innkeeper. Yeah. yeah but he, you know, he mm-hmm. saves her immediately from the cannibals. And then he's like, all right, we got to go save my boyfriend. He's like, okay. Wow. What am I going to get out and, of it? And then we can save the boyfriend. She's like, all right, now we got to kill this priest. He's like, uh, do we really need to kill? Okay, fine. It, it okay. is. Yeah, it's, a, it's very much like, can't they get back to killing this innkeeper that uh, screwed me over, please? But I, I think that's really cool that he, you know, her motivation is no one can know. So you have to be my agent, right? I need I need a, an outsider. That's not. right. 
And it, and that's why it feels like uh, Cora and I were talking a little bit about Vera Cruz. And I was thinking, why is it such a good movie? Uh, the 1954 movie with Gary Cooper and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, Kirk Douglas? No, it's not. Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. Lancaster, yeah. yeah. Burt Lancaster at his hottest about. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and apparently I was reading about the movie. Um, somebody had just worked with uh, Burt Lancaster and uh, he said, don't do that movie. <laughs> it's almost like um, they were colleagues and they were intense together and they were brothers. He says, don't do that movie with uh, Burt Lancaster. And uh, Gary Cooper says, why? And he says, he'll blow you off the screen. <laughs> because, you know, Gary Cooper is well, getting does. old. I mean, um, but, I, I always know that... He's uh, pretty good. Gary he's Co- pretty good. You, have to for- you forget that, uh, I, I mean, Gary Cooper is one of these what they call old crack-faced men in Westerns. There were a lot yep. of... I can... Uh, actors I really have problems telling apart uh, without the credits. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, okay, no, it's not. Gary Cooper's not good. Pain, but it's but one of the Burt Lancaster's guys. way more charismatic. But Lancaster, you recognize him the moment he comes on screen. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, also he's great, and I mean they're both great. Also Gary Cooper is, is he's a, a good actor and, and everything, but Lancaster really is. Uh, yeah, he's uh, the attract the main attraction about that movie. But Cora, and, uh, the, the lady, plot is actually kind of similar uh, to what we have here. If you remember the film. It's about mercenaries from the American Civil War leaving the Civil War, going down to Mexico, and working for the uh, Emperor of Mexico. Emperor Maximilian. Uh, yeah, an Austrian guy <laughs> who's Austrian. put on the uh, put on the throne of uh, Mexico, and and w- there's a scene at the dance party which I I think I sent uh, to you on Twitter. I'm sure I did. Mm-hmm. Um, where Burt Lancaster and Gary Cooper see each other at this dance. Uh, Burt Lancaster's just got into a, a beef. He's like a, he's a Conan-like figure with, you know, some high mucky muck, uh, who's dressed in a very fancy uniform. And it's like they're going to duel. And then when the girl comes into the room, he's not interested in the duel at all. And he grabs the glove from, the guy and he wipes his the sweat off his face with it and then gives it back to him. The glove that normally would be used to slap the guy to start a duel, he uses it like you're not even important, right? And then when yeah. the woman passes by them, Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster come together and they look at each other and they give each other the the nod, right? The chin nod where uh we see from that uh gif with Kirk and uh, her Bones. Her name was Den- Denise, the actress. Denise Darcel or something. Let me look up her name. But that okay. nod She was is, a French actress. And, and, is um, exactly what we're getting at the beginning uh, of of this sense. Denise Darcel is her name. Okay. I, I, I didn't even know the who she woman was. The woman is Sarah Montiel. She was, um, uh, she was a Mexican. No, a Spanish uh, Mexican actress. The other woman who plays a Mexican woman. It's a, it's a great movie because it has all this stuff and then the outsiders come in and they, they're cowboys. They're not, uh, you know, royalty, European royalty. I think, I think that's really cool. Um, and that's why Westerns are really cool. And there, there's so of, many. Not of them. Some of them are good. I think I had just had a bad luck with, with Westerns early on. There's lots on of great Also some, some comprehension issues like, okay, why is everybody so upset that someone stole a horse? And they're hanging someone about that, but otherwise people are shooting each other on the street. That's silly. Silly. So that was... Uh, and also, um, I think the winner to 
early exposure to the Winnetou stories also ruined a lot of the oh the, the Apaches and the Indians are evil stories for me because whenever someone in Western was like so Apaches is coming I think oh great Winnetou is coming coming now he's going to solve the problem and that wait a minute why are, are you shooting at them so yeah it's um, I mean I I'm appreciate I can appreciate Westerns now for what they are I can can understand the themes. I've always liked so Veracruz is one I've always liked since I first saw it as a, it's a great movie. As a kid. It's a very good one. Veracruz, um, River of No Return, Duel in the Sun, those are also the not quite and of course I mean High Noon is great. Man who shot Liberty Valance, but everybody says those are great. But the Veracruz are Yeah, they're they're, they're, no they're sort of meta westerns though. Those two. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. like that second wave western. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not yeah. the furthest. Uh, also, one with that actually has even even has Lon Wayne, whom I don't like. The one with uh, with uh, three Godfathers, I think, with uh, with the guys who have to take a baby, a baby across uh, the desert. When is Connor going to start doing some of the Howard Howard uh, Conan, not Conan stories, the Howard Western stories? Well, I might get into it. Um, there's a lot of those that have not been done. That's what I'm saying. And like, he's doing, a great writer. <laughs> d- doing this analysis that I was doing and, and setting up the data set of all the stories, I realized just how many westerns there were. He's just more ton, more than yeah. more than all the Conan stories. I'm pretty sure. There's more. I think there's uh, there's definitely more Steve Costigans, which are boxing stories, than the Conan oh, yeah. stories. And there's mm-hmm. also I think more. Um, what's his name? Uh, names uh, the Lent from Bear Creek is another smart smart guy. Uh, I forgot the name Breckenridge, now. Breckenridge yeah, Breckenridge Alkins. I think that's yeah. also more of them than their Conan story. Also, this, this stuff really that was his bread and butter because it's so because those uh, the magazines he sold them to were paid better and more promptly than Weird Tales did. <laughs> Action mm. stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Weird Tales was a uh, Weird Tales was once sent a word on acceptance <laughs> and uh, no on, on on publication, which could be at any time and usually not even then. Action stories and fight stories uh, paid on acceptance, and I think they paid better than one said the word. It might have been two or something like that. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, I think they had a bigger market too, right? I mean, Weird yeah. Tales is always kind of niche. Yeah. To, to weird us, Tales it's is like, very, very, very good, but it's, it's weird. It's, it's niche. It's not a. I mean, just think of how long the TV forget. shows, how many TV shows when I was a kid, Ponderosa, The Big Valley, there's so many Western. Shows and that was like right. a bonanza. That, but that was a legacy. Bonanza, Those yes. were the leftovers, right? Because the hotness was in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, well, with the progression of westerns, right? Like when you guys were talking about those movies, like Who Shot Liberty Vance or The Man Who Shot Liberty Vance. Like when I think of westerns now, from my perspective, I always think of stuff from like sixties, seventies, mm-hmm. and then sort of anything Spaghetti after westerns. that. Yeah, yeah more it's the Italian of ones, of course. And because um, mm-hmm. there was sort of like it seems like the fifties and sixties were really that very classic westerns with like good guys, bad guys, and the forties too. It, it was yeah. a, it was a thing, right? From the thirties, there were silent westerns. Yeah, absolutely. When I yeah. was uh, a kid, there was something on TV called Western von Gestern, which of course lovely rhymes <laughs> Western of Yesterday mm-hmm. Day, yeah. and uh, they it was old B movie westerns. I watched this a lot, and they always had this, which is from the Great Train Robbery. I think one of the, the very first western movies ever made from the early 20th century, where this guy, where this cowboy shoots the camera. 
Hammer, <laughs> don't do this. I mean, this is pro, this is what Alec Baldwin tried to do and killed the cinematographer, but this yeah, guy, don't try this and this was time. always the beginning. And then it said, and then they had all sorts of B movie westerns and, uh, and serials with sheep's would be souls and so on. So it was great stuff. Never been, hasn't really been rerun because a lot of the stuff was in black and white. And, uh, we only had a black and white TV well into the, until I think 81, 82. So I didn't really notice the difference. <laughs> it was just, uh, just the way TV was supposed to look. So yeah, those were good. And there were, there were also TV was full of Westerns, Westerns, even in the 1980s. It was either Westerns or war movies. And, uh, I, I did, I really hated war movies. It was also World War II movies, lots of, of men, men, no women, all the men were old. The Westerns, at least, they had, they had sometimes had women who were some of them who were attractive, and uh, there was adventure. Mm-hmm. I think um, they they I mean to take it back to the sort of pulp fiction, right? Those westerns were like mass produced, and um, only really the cream of the crop have s- survived in the modern yeah. consci- consciousness. Like mm-hmm. only we only know about the best ones, but there were so many more that were we there still that have, have just fallen Germany still away. Has Pulp westerns. I mean, uh, really? Kind of, if you go in in castle somewhere, if you go to a newsstand, something, or maybe also some the supermarket, they have these spinner racks, or sometimes where they have these little diet-sized magazines, which are pulp yeah. magazines, and they have westerns. Lots I of saw- westerns, lots of romancey stuff, stuff, doctors, I- and so on, and so. I remember and a lot of the Zane Grey novels mm-hmm. come out in like the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather had a huge collection of those, just old western paperbacks, not the really old ones, but like seventies or eighties. The mm-hmm. I used to sell audiobooks, uh, and uh, they they produced a ton of short stories. Most of them were from the pulps, right? As audiobooks, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, I like would see these names. And I'm like, I don't like westerns, but actually, I think I was off. I think you, it's something you have to come to appreciate, and it, it is a, it's a set of tropes, right? There's the range. It's a genre. It's a genre, and and it's. As fictional as, you know, space opera, but, uh, it also has values that are different than war movies. War movies is like, you need to follow the law, which is go fight these guys, follow orders. Uh, maybe you can have like some variations, like every once in a while they'll do a movie where, uh, the two opposing teams, they have a soccer match on Christmas, right? And then it's a Christmas movie that's pretending to be a war movie. <laughs> A Christmas movie. Which really did happen. Of course. Of course. Really did happen. <laughs> but, but what happened to the guys who did it? Right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> you want to get shot? Do I that again. Each other again. Right? Idiots. Right. And so, like, war movies, like, serve a purpose in a way that Westerns don't. Westerns don't serve, uh, government the way, <laughs> and corporations the way. I think it's a much more bottom up. And that's why it's so, so thought of as like shitty. I mean, they do push a sort of American uh, mythology, some kind of individualist, uh, go west young man. Mythology. Well, some let me put it this. Let them. me ask you this, Cora. Do they study science fiction at universities now? Answer is yes. Sometimes. Do they study westerns at university? The answer is no. Very and the, rarely. Re- and the reason they don't is because it, it doesn't support the ideology. Which is, you know, we have to, like, science fiction actually serves an ideology. Uh, astounding is the training for our engineers are going to 
build those rockets to nuke the Russians, right? What does Western, what do Westerns serve? They don't serve anything. Like yeah, leave town, is, go yeah, to the West. Looking yeah, in terms of, uh, they were useful ones, but they're no longer, I mean, they're creating a national mythology for the U.S., which, uh, yeah, you're reading. Really, you're reading. Less, you're reading that less history than other, as, as a sentence. charitable way. But what were you going to say, Connor? Oh well, I was just going to say that, um, like westerns are always looking backwards, right? And and they do sort of, in a sense, yeah, create that mythology, right? Like you have these kind of Clint Eastwood or um, other these characters that are role models. But really, I see your point, Jesse, about like science fiction is looking at the future and trying to inspire people. Yeah. Or you know, the golden age of the Western was a generation after the West was won and you know, kind of closed out. Mm-hmm. And they were the, the people reading the original wave of Westerns were the kids or the grandkids of the generation that was being portrayed in them. But uh, how like, it's he just far enough. He oh. met those old cowboys. He talked to a lot of them because he was fascinated by them. Them. It's a, uh, he was, um, uh, well, he was uh, he was Howard was born in 196, so that was just about around the end of the, the West. But they don't yeah. they don't study they don't study romances at university either, and the reason they don't they do very rarely. There's, there's no classes, few, is yeah, what I'm saying. There's uh, there's a few classes and a very very few um, specialized academics. I've been to a con- I've met a few of them at a conference. Yeah, once, I, so today exist, today things are. Today things are like getting pretty shaky uh, in the in the university. When I was going to university, which is you know dozen years or more ago, um, <laughs> finding a science fiction class, uh, it, it, it's about sixteen years ago. I think. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. finding a science fiction class was pretty hard. I had to go into the women's studies department to find one, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and they didn't study romances. That was not an option. They don't study westerns. They don't study anything that they look down on. So when when you're looking down on it, it's generally because it's bottom up. Somebody at the bottom says, "I I want this." Romance novels serve a certain interest that mostly women have, right? Westerns serve a certain interest that mostly men have and some women, right? And it's if you look at those old pulps, as I know Alex does. Right, they have range romances. That's the girls, and then there's like action western, and that's the boys. And yes, both people, both genders read yes. both, but not to the same yes, degree. Range romance, one of the longest running pulps. I think yep. it ran fairly long. It was so it must have been really popular. I think yep. it ran into the sixties or seventies, way beyond all the other ones. Railroad stories is the oldest. It was one of the earliest, and it's still around. There's something that's died. Man, railroad fiction, <laughs> it's really fallen off. Well, yeah. railroads aren't popular as in the U.S. at all. I mean, I mean the even last... model trains are like a weird old man thing. Well, what, how, how respectful are they of the they, uh, government says, hey, you guys want a union? Fuck you. We're legislating against it. That's how popular it is now, right? <laughs> it, it, it absolutely is not. It used to be like an up and coming job. Like you get good pay. You travel the country. It's high tech, right? Now nothing. It's still a pretty good job in Germany. Germany to be a train driver, a train driver, it pays also well a train in the US attendant. Too, but the hours are shitty. No one wants to do yes. it. Yes, it's a little bit like being a truck driver. I mean, they're also truck driving very, pays pretty well. They're also just, quite dangerous because there's like a lot of shit going into your lungs from yeah, the jobs. It's. Uh, 
in the US it probably still is dangerous also because the, the train tracks are really bad yeah it's yeah, not really it's not very dangerous to drive hours, a train in Germany no time off bad healthcare and and the pay is not that great. It's it's okay, it's okay, but not compared to they like. They have a, also have a pretty strong union. Our train drivers. There was a massive strike a couple of years ago. Go with of the train drivers union, and uh, basically they said like, why are you treating the, the airline pilots better than you treat us? And um, and because um, they did, they went on strike and they didn't get all the, the increases they wanted, but uh, they got a quite hefty increase. Not not the case. I, ha here. I have to. I have to say that, like, noticing um, the pe people who are doing these jobs mm -hmm. in Germany compared to Australia, I see a lot more young people doing these jobs in Germany than I would see it than I see in Australia. In Australia, it seems to be like an older generation who have been doing it for a long time, but young people aren't coming into it. Mm -hmm. But in Germany, it seems like a lot of younger people can support themselves and have a career. It's yeah, considered it's a, a good job. job. Yeah. You don't need a. It's a, you don't need university education. It's a secure job, job because um the because the train. Well, there's others, but the main the Deutsche Bahn, the main train service is uh, largely government owned. Uh, owned. It's a secure job, so it's it's considered a very secure secure and good job. So younger people are doing it. Yep. Neo-capitalism um, hasn't fully taken over Germany yet. Not yet. I, th I think that's a good note to end this since we're just about at noon central. So I think about time for everybody needs yeah, to get to go places. Yeah, it's about seven. Yeah. All right. Corey, Corey needs to eat. Connor has things. Alex Space has things. Viking is next week. Who's in for that? Alex. Of course I'm in Paul, for that. That's Cora. Piper. <laughs> oh, wait. No, 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 no. no, no. Paul's in for that gym I mean, kitchen. I would, would be up to doing that one, definitely. You want to be in for that? I'll add you. Um, um, is that an Alex book? Space Viking? I haven't read this H. Beam Piper. I haven't actually read it. Um, I don't know if I can make it next week. That'll be like four weeks in a row. Oh, is it? My wife has been like, you have another one? Really? Oh, you were not for the skull, were you? That's not no, four no, weeks in a row. No, only not... three weeks in a row. Tell her it's yeah, only three weeks in a row. She wants you to spend some time with your new baby? Well, people have weird desires. All right. Um, there's a week Women, off. Man. Yeah, I know. There's um, a week off because Paul's Paul's in Chicago. Right, but Venom Business, you're going to be back for that. Uh, yes, that's, Cora, yeah, you're yeah. on for the Venom Business, I assume. Well, C C Cora does um, it. Oh, which one Crichton. is that? Venom Business. Michael, that's a Michael Crichton. Crichton. Uh, Writing as Jonathan Lang. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's your. Let me see if I can actually get a get a copy of the book. I just found the Space Viking. Okay. Which I actually thought of the, the original Space Viking. Then we're there's doing Rocket Ship at Galileo. By Robert A. Heinlein. Uh, Looking forward to that. Probably not for me. <laughs> no worries. Unseen Unfeared by Francis Stevens. That's a new uh, and one of the last few things. She Almost everything's getting audiobooked by her. She didn't write yeah. a million, but I'm excited about that. Then uh, Hopkins Manuscript. Jesse and Paul have signed up for that, but um, oh, yeah. nobody so else. That someone just, uh, just said the Alec just said it was very, very good. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah Alex Navalli. Um, and it sounds like a book I would like, so I'm excited about that. Then we're going to do The Crawlers by uh, Philip K. Dick, Dick. And then The Golden Slave by Paul Anderson. So um, what what is Connor going to record for us that's going to go in here before he has to go off to Farmville? Farmville. That's not cool. Um, okay. 
Good question. Do you mean as, in terms of like a recording? Sure. Uh, like an audiobook? I, I, would, probably... I would like, uh, you know, uh, Skullface myself. <laughs> oh, okay. yes. That's Skullface. a long one. I know. I know. Um, but um, I will I will have some time. And as long as you're happy with the audio not being too great, um, yeah, I can I can do something. Okay. Well, Skullface is too long. So what, what would uh... – Okay, the only things that I have in the back of my mind are uh-huh. there's a Steve Harrison story that I haven't read called Names in the Black Book. Sounds good. Um, oh, I've never heard of it. <laughs> oh, here's, here's a suggestion, Connor. Oh, I, oh, yeah? I think I just posted on, that I, on Tweets of High Adventure. Did you? How, ah, how are you on, okay. on Fritz Leiber? Uh, I like him. I've read, it's uh, not public I've read domain a lot of his unless it's, Sword and Sorcery. Unless it's uh, one of the... What about Coming Attraction? No, coming dude. Attraction. There's a million of those. There's a million. Yeah, of those. But, but we can get Connor to do comedy. No, attraction. no, no. Connor should do ones that are never been done before. Don't waste Connor on. There's like literally waste a, Connor sounds. Yeah, <laughs> no. Put Connor. Put Connor. Connor on on Conan duty or Robert E. Howard duty. I sent Connor one. Um. Uh. Sort of a stealth. Um. One was uh the James Corley. Art. It was the thing on the roof. Have you read that one yet? Oh, um, it's short. I, I have read it. Uh, it's not amazing, it. but it's cool. It's yeah. it's got a you got a cool description of a South American temple. Yes, and also there's uh, a beast on the roof with hooves and uh, in some versions nipples. <laughs> I don't know how you hear the nipples on the roof. <laughs> um, it's a horror story. It's a horse. Yeah, it's it's a. What you want to know? It's a Robert E. Howard doing H.P. Lovecraft story. Okay. <laughs> this okay. This is um. There's one that's like hooves. Uh, hooves in the night. Yes. <laughs> that yes like it might. It might have been that. No, that and just maybe, made that up. <laughs> it no, sounds no, like one that would. Uh, I'll send this he to has some chat. horror story that's like the hooves upstairs or hooves on the roof or something like that. Yeah. Uh the thing on the roof is, is this the one. thing. Okay. No, maybe I'm it's, thinking. I may have read it, but um, look, I'm going to take a look and uh, I could do that. Also got the. It's one of the two books where he talks a lot about um, nameless cults. Unstreckable yes. Colton uh, un- is terribly uh, <laughs> There, finally, finally, your German's going to come in handy. Finally, his German's going to come in handy. Unpronounceable cults, I think, is the actual yes. translation of what he wrote. Indeed. Well, hmm. unaussprechlich also means uh, something you should never say because it is absolutely evil and terrible. It's not just unpronounceable. <laughs> Okay, so it does kind of lean into. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was sort of his intention. I wrote kind of a thing about like, that. Yeah. Howard, okay, this... uh, probably new German speakers. I mean, there's quite a few. There are quite a, Texas has a lot of German immigrants. Starts with a Justin Joffrey who are still poem. speaking German in the in the early 20th century. This is I only nine pages. Texas today was a. Um, they, well, they, they celebrate their German heritage with Oktoberfest. You could September, do this in a week. Like this is like seven, seven pages, really. And oh, yeah. the I, first I and last this. pages are not even, it's probably, uh, it's probably close to half hour. Okay. I could do this one. That's I mean, it has something to I'm do. I'm pretty certain that, um, I'm pretty certain that August Derleth was the person who coined the Unausspechterkulten. Um, that that phrase, but he didn't speak German. But I think he was trying to translate it, and that's why it comes off a bit wonky. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, I can yeah. do this story. I mean, I, I'm I'm saying something something like that that's never been recorded would be cool. At any rate, you can oh, yeah. pronounce unaussprechliche Kulte, which is uh, <laughs> better than probably a lot of other audiences. <laughs> yeah. Whenever there's some German, I'm, I'm always like, oh, but there's, there's good, lots of, lots on Gutenberg Australia. That one is Canadian public domain at the, at the very least. Um, and we have the art for it. And there's that MS Corley art as well as there's a comic book adaptation. And, um, and there's also, um, actually there might, I think there's more than one comic book. I think there's a Marvel Chillers version as well. It's kind mm. of fun because it, it's it's actually that's how I got into H.P. Lovecraft is through Robert E. Howard. I was like reading his stuff and I'm like, who is this guy? It took me a long Interesting. time. It was the it was the reverse for me. Yeah, I I was like, oh, is there any more of this kind of weird tales sort of material and somebody else? And you see Robert E. Howard comes up a lot when you do that, and then you you know get hooked and you realize he wrote all kinds of stuff. Cool, I'll check this out too. Nice. I found Howard via Conan because um, I didn't know much about Conan except that it was very, very bad. Very, very bad. It was bad for you. you That's what it said at university, right? It would probably right? make you lazy. It's really terrible. <laughs> yep. And of course, I was curious. And then I found a Lancer, an original Lancer paperback. So first printing. No, it's still in good condition. These things usually fall apart. Of the hour of the, well, it was Conan the Conqueror called, but it's the hour of the dragon. And then I realized, okay, all the people, everything those people are saying about Conan is wrong. They obviously have no idea. Also, this stuff was really good. And apparently he has written. And then the next one I found was a Robert, was a Robert Jordan pastiche, which was not good. But yeah, no, it's not. I found the other one first. And uh, so, and then I found, oh, like, he's written lots of other things. I didn't even know about that. And I found Cole and uh, Ryan McMahon and Solomon Kane. And then said, oh, he's written westerns. Well, why not? And oh, he's written stories about boxers who go sailing. Well, why not? <laughs> so, yeah. Cora, was, was Conan the first sword and sorcery thing that you read or had you already read uh, other stuff? I read uh, Red Fritz Leiber first, actually. Ah, okay. I read Fafard and Grey Mauser was the first sword and sorcery I found as a teenager. There are so, Fafard yeah. and the Grey Mauser stories you could do um, if, if you want to do like something outside of Conan, uh, outside of Robert E. Howard. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, the PDF page has got a ton of them. The problem is, is finding the right one, um, and not are all. They, of them. Are they public they, domain? Because um, just check my website. Still, because okay. <laughs> uh, Lava hasn't been dead very long. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter I mean, about he's the been death. Dead thirty years, but that's not public domain long. <laughs> It, it's it's for the U.S., so it doesn't matter. Yeah, most based on publication date. Right? Yeah, and, and yeah, renewal, and renewal. And yeah, renewal might, must be the thing because it was uh, they were all published in the the first one was published in thirty nine. It has nothing to do with the author's the, death. Nothing in in the United States, zero to do with it. So if mm. you died in nineteen twenty one or you're still alive, Robert Silverberg stuff is public domain. Has nothing to do with death in the United States. Yeah. Uh, the only only uh, caveat to that is if you are alive, you could renew, right? If you're dead and you're a kid, yeah, yeah, and most people didn't, right? Um, Arlen oh, yes, Ellison yes, renewed yeah. practically everything, but most people uh, don't. May yes. I push? May I point a, a friend of mine whose grandfather wrote um, wrote uh, detective stories, which were backup features in the shadow, and he wants to reprint them, but. Uh, Conde Nast and who took over. Well, those are probably work for hire. No, uh, no. If he has questions, can I point him to you? 
It, uh, what I'm saying is they're probably work for hire, hire, so he probably can't. Yeah, it was probably work for hire, so um, probably... Now, you could prove that if you have the original contract to say it's not work for hire, but sometimes it says, like, in the in the magazine that it is work for hire. Almost never does it say that. But if it... it especially the, the hero pulps like that, they tended to be work for hire, right? All yeah, the, so because they were written so under pen names. It was a backup feature. Grace Calver, a female detective character, was a backup feature on The Shadow. And he wants to reprint them and basically condemn us to say... You can pass my name on, Maybe if you're Hollywood. You can pass my name on to this person, but um, just based on the fact that it, they were in those magazines, it's probably uh, a waste of time. Yeah. There's tons, there's tons of Howard horror. Um, and at some point, Connor, I, I think we should do um, what everybody thinks is Ho- Howard's best horror story. And I think is a very good horror story, but not the best, uh, which is the two white men go into a haunted house and pigeons from hell. Pigeons from hell. Oh, that's great. It's a good story. Fantastic. It's a really good story. And I, I think it's a really interesting story, but I, I just got a comic adaptation of it. So made me think um, I can scan that when we do that. But there's a lot. Yeah. Old Garfield's heart is on Gutenberg, Australia. Um, there's a, there's a lot of Howard and I really want to get into the Steve Costigan stuff too. This and, yeah, that's somewhere. Yeah, I've never read any of that yet. And because it's not uh, that that's why that's why we have to use Connor as a very useful resource for getting stuff mm-hmm. that is not public do- not public but, domain but not uh, on audio yet. Uh, Steve Costigan, I think they have they even have full full cast audio adaptations. Mark Finn, I think a few, did a few of them. A very few. Yeah. Yeah, not all of them, but no, there just are, a couple. I mean, not all of them because there's a ton of those things. Mhm. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I don't know much about the Francis Gordon stories other than, you know, uh, but I, I'm up for all the, all of it. I, I want to do it so all. On, on that note, um, I was going to say one thing that I'm sort of planning on doing. This will be in the far future, like at least six months or more. Oh, good. Is, um, <laughs> and Cora, you might be interested in this one is, uh, a, Audiobook of the English translation of The Devil's Elixir by E.T.A. Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Which I've just finished reading, which is a, um, into, it's gothic, it's a gothic novel that from pretty early mm-hmm. and it's a pretty ripping story, cool. right? And there's Hoffman no. Hoffman is good anyway. He's kind yeah. of, he's very underrated in Germany, but then we, we never really like the, the weird and, and gothic ones. Yeah. So, um, yeah. He's underrated. I mean, uh, he also has an early he has an early robot story actually. One it's of a German the, audio one book of, the of it. First. What sorry? What kind of story does he have? An early. He has an early robot story about a mechanical doll, Olympia. I forgot now the title. Oh, uh, it is. I, I'm sorry. I know this one. It's um the Sandman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. But it's With very famous. But it's really it's a robot story. One of the earliest out there. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's creepy too. It's really like yeah, an Hoffman unsettling is, is story. good. I really I always liked Hoffman a lot, but yeah, Norman literature is is weird. We we also um I mean we ignore the interesting interesting good and Schiller Schiller stuff for the dull for the dull stuff, which is also a case of like why. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too and, weird. Uh, People yeah. going to school in Germany. It's a big uh, book, Connor. Actually. Oh, yeah. uh, Put you off German literature, even though that's unfair because they only focus on stuff which is unsuitable for teenagers or which is, uh, 
which is just unsuitable for the general. It's yeah. It's twelve mm. hours twenty four minutes in German. So that's going to be oh, a, yeah. your biggest project ever. It's long. Yeah, <laughs> I'm anticipating it might take me about four months to record it. It's can, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So this is this is far future, but okay. I think I'm up I'll for work it. on it while I do, and I'll do some other projects at the same time. But long term goal. But uh, it should be a fun thing to discuss. I have it has a doppelganger in it, yeah. which is yeah, which I love this kind of thing, and it's one of the earliest. Was it you who was talking about um about the connection between E.T.A. Hoffman and Poe recently? Yes, because I've been researching yeah doppelgangers, and, and there's uh, a connection there between William Wilson. And as obviously you were saying, I think it was you who was saying Poe was reading this ETA Hoffman and lifting, or maybe some, maybe some article I was reading was saying, you know, this story is that story minus all the long parts. Um, what was the, it's, the, there's a lot of, oh, crossover uh, oval portrait, oval portrait. Oh, um, yeah, and ETA Hoffman. Um, because the oval portrait's like three pages long, right? And the thing that the Hoffman was from is like it has that scene, but the rest of the book is way bigger. Uh, oval portrait. See if I can bring it up. There's a lot of overlap, like, and it goes back and forth, right? Because I think E.T.A. Hoffman inspired Poe, and then Poe inspired an early black and white film called The Student of Prague, right? Which was a German film. Um, and so it's like, there's a bit of back and forth between, uh, like German culture and American culture in terms of this kind of story. Of course, also, um, the, this, um, kind of retreat on the, on the shores of Lake Geneva in the year without summer, which, which resulted in the vampire and Frankenstein and some, and some not very famous, not so famous stuff by Percy Sully and, uh, (laughs) It was they were inspired by reading a at the time very famous collection of um, of well uh, Central European they're not all German one of the famous ones I think is set in Bohemia ghost stories mm-hmm. and one of those very famous stories is a story called uh, Der Freischütz Schütz, uh, Schütz, which is also an opera and is still performed so there was a lot of connection between German uh, romanticism and the in, and the Gothic literature of the which is basically the same thing Gothic literature and German romanticism, they come from the same area. This is uh, from the same era. And so it's more or less the same thing in two different countries. But there was a lot of connection between them. Them Also, Goethe, for example, liked Shakespeare and translated Shakespeare. Yeah, and um, repopularized Shakespeare in Germany. So they had a lot of connection with each other, which is not not quite as well remembered these days. In the chat, I put yeah. uh, this book influence of eta hoffman on tales of edgar Allan poe was it was it you <laughs> sent this to me connor or was yeah this? I, I okay tweeted that okay and uh, maybe that's what i read quite quite a bit of it um yeah very I've interesting i've got to go jesse all right thank you stuff. paul take care everybody okay bye paul Right, see oh, yes, um, and uh, the Venom whatever by Michael Crichton. I'm afraid I can't do that because um, oh, I, I can't can get send, a copy I of can the send book. You in the, the only copy I could find is like 70, 69 years, and sorry, that's not worth it. Uh, 69 years is a bit much. I can send the audio. Didn't Hercules Crime reprint that one? They did. <laughs> yeah, they reprinted all of them. Okay. Um, I might have to head off as all well. All right, have a so good I'll one. Just say- are you, are you okay, a little Connor. sick, Connor? Your voice is a little... I am, unfortunately. All right. My throat's um, a bit ru- 
Rushdie. What did you, just a regular, I hope just a regular buck and not COVID, but just everybody nah. is sick right now. Yeah, I've just had these colds on and off. I'm not, yeah, um, everybody is having these right now in Germany. And, get uh, healthy. So we need your voice. Uh, everybody's so well. Feel so well. Get better soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I will. Thanks very much. I'll try. Bye. Anyway, good, to, good to chat to you all. Yeah, See you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'll also be leaving now because right. I'm. Yeah. Still- How come you can't get a hard case crime? Uh, I don't know. It's a pen. I don't know why, because I can get the modern hard, but I think it's hard case probably took it out of print and, uh, well, and the only ones left is a, is a, should be on eBay. Seller on, on eBay, some, some really weird seller, seller. It's not a, on Amazon zone. And because normally That's I can weird. get them maybe from a third party seller. Yeah. I have no idea why, why I can't get it, but it's not. I'm just um, going to look on Abe. Um, but. It's also like I can I can send the audiobook. I might be able to get the ebook, but I'm not an ebook guy, so you have to give me mm-hmm. your details about what you would want. Yeah, uh, I would probably prefer the e version simply because I'm not really an audiobook person. Uh, that's why my understanding. But what like EPUB or what 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 are the other ones? Um, I don't know EPUB anything about it. EPUB is best, uh, but um, Mobi's other one also works or PDF. Okay, okay. Well, PDF, yeah. PDF, I understand. I don't understand the other two. Yeah, I can. EPUB, I, can just, I try and get uh, all my books in EPUB when I can because I can load them EPUB up in Google is, Books is and read them on anything I want. Uh, so, uh, you have uh, a e a, a device for reading it on, or you just use a phone or what? I use my phone or my computer. If you're on Google Books, you can use both. You can switch back and forth or remember what page you're on. That's weird, though. I, I don't like looking at screens a... like that. I mean, I do it I all. I look at screens all day long. That's my problem. I, I don't do. want to look at screens more. I want to look at screens less. Um, so there is uh, a six seventy. I'll just send my link here. I don't. Maybe it doesn't ship to Germany. Yeah, that's a problem. Ebooks are always a problem in, in well, Germany. No, no, this is a real paper book. So it says Venom Business a- published Signet 1969, six dollars seventy five cents, used soft cover, very good condition. Shipping to the USA is four ninety five. Okay, let's. Oh no, yeah, that's can- yeah. Yeah, so that that's yeah, because very cheap. Uh, the paperback is really I have to pay sixty nine euro sixty plus shipping for this bloody paperback. Maybe it's a cheaper one. Let's see what's that. Maybe this one is uh, is better. I mean, I not, use, but no, that's a, not a paperback. That's um, an audio CD. I'll look on. No, the paper. Oh yeah, it's, oh, and I have to pay two dollar ninety two euros ninety nine delivery, and I will get it on February. Wonderful. Yeah. No, sorry. Okay, <laughs> hang on. Like These to. people, uh, maybe there's a better. Uh, yes, maybe this one is better. Let me check this one. It says South Germany. In the chat, did you see the link I sent? Is yeah, that, it's uh, somewhere in Oregon. Huh? There's some. Uh, there's two from USA. Yeah, twelve euros shipping. This this one is kind of acceptable. So have to just no idea when to get it, when I'll get it. But this one's kind of acceptable. All right. There's an the e-book. shipping is also always so ridiculously expensive. There's an ebook, ePub of the Venom business I can download right now for you. Mm-hmm. You're lucky you know a pirate girl. <laughs> Had you not known a pirate, you'd have been happy. If you've got the ePub for that, could you? Yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah, because uh, Amazon doesn't have an ePub. If they had, if they had to have an ebook, otherwise I would have bought one, but they don't have one. Yeah. It's three it's from 2013. Three I mean, it's kilobytes. Wow, so li- that can't be right. Only three kil. Oh no, no, that's the torrent file. Never mind. That's just the address for. Yeah, three kilobytes yeah. is nothing. Okay, mm-hmm. let's see how fast it downloads. Active. 
side. No, eight date added. There we go. All right, John Lang, Venom Business. I guess that's book five of the John Lang books. It's an EPUB. It's six point three megabytes. It should be done in thirty seconds. Not even. Mm-hmm. Send me the link. Uh, yeah, I, I'll send you the file. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, I'll. Thanks, guys. Yep. Have a good one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Just hang on a second, Cora, and I'll send this to you. You actually have my email. Uh, I can just probably drag and drop it into the um, chat if you prefer. If oh. it's possible, sure. Then I can just download it. Uh, let me just see if I... Anyway, at any rate, I can have the Space Viking delivered very quickly to me. That All one, right. Amazon so has, has a copy of that one in stock. Copy, drop. <laughs> and interestingly, I had a, I had a hard case, I have a hard case crime in the shopping basket, which I was going to buy, uh, to buy once, uh, once I got over the over the limit, uh, over the, the 29 euro limit, uh, limit for free shipping. Paste. Okay, so um, if that doesn't work, it's almost finished uploading. If that doesn't work, I will send you the Yeah, file, I can. Um, as soon as it finishes uploading to the Dropbox. And I'll send this to... Ah, uh, there's a file, yes. I want to Yes, of course, I'll accept the file. Now it's downloading it. There we go. The Venom business. And it seems to have finished download. Yes, it finished downloading. Yeah, it's it's weird. Sometimes it's because normally I can get the hard case crimes, no problem. But this one was, uh, no idea why this one took so long. Don't know. Maybe. Maybe it was popular. Possible, but because I I got some of I got uh, two or three of them uh, them for cheap uh, at a remainder bookstore. Eighteen seconds, yeah, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I'm paying attention to ebook technology, um, but I'm not buying them. <laughs> the devices. I I there's a channel I watch on YouTube where they talk about the latest devices, and they've got color. Now, but they're it's not great e ink you know mm. it's it's not rich color, it's sort of pale, washed out, which is a sad story because i i wanna i wanna have ebook capability that isn't print i i print everything out, and uh, that's fine, but it's a little more expensive and i I do like tech so. That should work for you. Okay, thanks. You're very welcome. Did the snow stick when you uh, got your snow from last night? Um, no, it didn't. Didn't. It was gone by the morning. Yeah, I think we were. Maybe we'll get some more too. tonight. And then it went away. But I don't really need snow if I have to drive uh, half a cro- halfway across town to to visit my mom so, at the hospital. So what's what they figured out what the issue is? Um, they, vasculitis is what they're thinking right That's now. She has blisters. Yes, there's red le- red and legs and blisters on her legs. And right now she's in a dermatological specialty clinic mm. clinic, which is why we had to because it's every, all the clinics are full, all the hospitals are full, and. Uh, and so we had to take her to the emergency room ourselves of, that, clear, of that, that hospital. And the hospital is, 
it's not that, but it's in a different part of town. So and you have to go there via the, well, you can drive through town, but it takes forever. So you go via the highway. Mm. They call and it the, the highway or they call it the autobahn? Yeah, but it's uh, but uh, autobahn is what I call it if it's, if it's in Germany because that's what it is. But uh, yeah. highway is English translation. Yeah, I, I, I have to go via yeah. autobahn. What's bahn? Yeah, so what's mean, bahn it, mean in in German? It means bahn means train. It's basically it's like a railroad for cars. Okay, yeah. That's uh, that was the original name. It's a railroad mm. for cars. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess cars go on a rail too. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, there are, there are car rail, railways, of course. There are, there are car transports on railway, and uh, and also um, actually a travel travel where you can put your car on a railroad car and, and a railroad, and then go traveling somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's a system. It's a thing. Still is a thing. Was more pop- used to be more popular, but still it still exists. Mm-hmm. Anyway, also I have to sign off now because I'm kind of hungry. I haven't eaten and haven't eaten since this thing, and I'm glad I could could make it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same. Okay, so see you around, and um, I'll, I'll I'll be ordering that Space Viking book, so I should have that one. Sounds good. Okay. Talk to you Bye, later. Jesse. Bye. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. Female take. Mm. But what's funny is Charwoman's daughter, right? It's already got Charwoman, the title. You don't need to have a daughter. Well, no, I disagree. I mean, I mean, it depends on, I mean... It depends on how the focus works and who the who the focus is and reframing things. So you you can you can have a daughter. I, I see the trouble in shadow. I, uh, yeah, shadow. That's the one. Um, I knew I knew Paul would have that as his response. I I was predicting it in my mind. I should have written it down and hold it held up a piece of paper. <laughs> well, well, fine, fine, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my predictions are not always perfect, Paul. Well, I can certainly imagine a story where uh, your main character is, you know, some kind of hero with you know, a lot of positive attributes and is something very impressive and important and significant. And you do a retelling from the point of view of their daughter, who is less yeah, of a princess of Mars's daughter, right? <laughs> it's or, or, fine. Or or, 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 or wife. Uh, well, astronaut's like- wife, astronaut's daughter. Same. It's the same but- thing. But 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 you know but since such points of view are in in the original narratives often elided, minimized, dismissed, and not seen, have, reframing things and having them centered is an is a is a good thing. It doesn't diminish the original. It, it provides new and interesting points of view that you wouldn't get otherwise. That's the theory, right? The that's pro- that's. That's the th- well. Well, I mean, like any work of literature, the, is it successful or not is an open question. But that's, but that's the intent is to provide new and different points of view on a story that often doesn't get told in the original, in the original tellings and the original narratives. Because you know, 
I, so I can't. So, so, so I, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm, one one kind of trope I've always liked. Um, a lot of times, heroes in you know, classic stories, pulp stories, a lot, a lot of different genres, the hero is you know the he's the ace, right? He's he's the best fighter. He's the best detective. He's the mm. best pilot. He's the whatever. He's he's the ace, right? That's why he's the hero of the story, mm. which can make challenges uh, less impressive when he overcomes them, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times people will take that character and leave him as the ace, not not do like a broken pedestal kind of thing, but just leave him as this really incredible person. But then tell the story from someone else's perspective. So it's much more impressive. It's like, holy crap, this guy is insane. Basically, um, Beyond the Black River is basically. Yeah, I was going to say, Howard Dawson. Because it's um, Tony is kind of a side Baltus, Baltus is his name, the, the <laughs> young man who's, uh, who gets killed in the end. Very sad. But He's not the ace. through his eyes. The colonist's son is not a title. Uh, I go onto Amazon and I type in the blanks daughter and t- a few things come up, but I've seen the phenomena. Like I'm in the store and I see, Oh, it's one of those books. <laughs> and it's usually yeah, daughter. Yeah, so, so whatever, so whatever. Bookseller's wife, daughter. daughter. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I went into Google just now, not Google, Amazon just now. And I put the apostrophe S's daughter. And, you know, I don't get the best results because that's not really a title, but there are some up here and they include things like the Irishman's daughter, uh, <laughs> the, let's see, I saw some more. Uh, yeah, that one, I don't know. There were a lot of those for a while. Yes. There were a lot of it was a phenomenon, like zombie books were a phenomenon for a little while. Yeah, whatever, whatever daughter. Yes. And. Uh, uh, there's a German one, one historical mystery series called The Hangman's Daughter. The President's Daughter. Yeah, yeah the pre- oh, that was a, wasn't it a movie, The President's Daughter? I don't know. First Kid was a movie. First Kid. <laughs> That's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it has to be The Heretic's Daughter, The Butterfly's Daughter. Like, it's a, it's a phenomenon, like, uh, it, it, it's signaling the man, uh, Dr. Moreau, the daughter of Dr. Moreau by um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, which came out last year, is a somewhat belated entry in that. Uh, Dr. Moreau's <laughs> daughter would fit the pattern better, but yeah, <laughs> but the pattern is somewhat, it's awful. but it's a doc- but I think it's a signaling thing. Yeah. Like uh, if you see um, a bare-chested man on the cover of a book and a lady in his arms, it's a romance novel, right? So the this apostrophe s's daughter phenomena. Um, tends to be, uh, and I'm sure there are counterexamples, like, you know, there's, I'm seeing one here called The Ditch Digger's Daughter. That doesn't sound like, uh, this genre. I think that that's probably like somebody telling their own story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but th- the thing is, is it's a signaling thing. And, and when you're making a new, uh, genre that's hot, <laughs> you have to, glom onto it somehow and since the covers are so shitty and they don't signal anything anymore right it's just like laces lace and like color and then a font um generally uh stock art goes in stock art yeah um then i think what we're getting is yeah uh, bad stuff (laughs) because it's glomming on it's it's follow after rather than just notice how um, how increasingly the mysteries, especially um, all, again, have murder in the title. This was a thing in the 1920s and 1930s when bookstores didn't have a mystery section, so it was always murder in the basement, murder right, right, at the races, 
murder on the bell tower, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly you get these books again with yes. these murder, which is like, okay, I mean, I know I'm buying a, a crime novel or mystery. It's kind of obvious <laughs> it's going to be a murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> murder, mm-hmm. but they still have names like murder at Black Oak, murder in the Death Bible, on the Nile. Murder, mm. murder on the Orient Express. The the you over know, the, in the gun room. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. one of the most famous examples. <laughs> the, the interesting is death on the Nile, not murder on the Nile. Even though oh. obviously the death is a murder. <laughs> the gothic romance uh, titles often are similar, but they also have that image, that striking image of yeah. a woman running away, a the big house, and a woman. light high in the in the tower. Well, this is important, right? If people want to read a certain genre, like I like. Yeah, I'm, I'm a low class kind of person. I like picking up a book with spaceships on the cover. Like, oh, this book has spaceships on the cover. Right. There's a there's a seventy percent chance I'll like this. Right. It's not <laughs> not a hundred percent, but this looks like the kind of book I want it's to read. The, a lot of people yeah. want to be able to just grab a book, look at, it and go, oh, it's in this genre. I yes. will or I won't like it because yes. booksellers don't like people buying books and then hating them because then they give them negative reviews and they don't read that book. It was terrible. Well, right. it wasn't really for you. That wasn't your genre. Go read go read your stuff and. Let people who want to read this kind of thing read this kind of thing. And the clearer and more succinctly they can sell the book and just you know tell people what it's going to be, what they're going to expect when they read it. So they are not disappointed or not. Reader and genre expectations. Like I yeah. see a spaceship, I expect there is a spaceship. Like, for example, uh, back in the 90s, I remember an interview with the author Leanne Norman. And her novels involve a human telepath and the – um, basically, the Zinti, although it's basically a cat person that she's bonded the to. The Kazinti's daughter. <laughs> but no, no, no. But, but, but anyway, she, yeah. it's, it's science fiction tropes, but she insisted that every one of her book covers have a spaceship on it because they didn't want to think it was romance or fantasy. She wanted to make they sure that, yes, it's a science fiction. Rather romance-y. They have rather romancy covers. Uh, yeah. Covers because they are. Yeah, and also she's of course a female author, which also in a lot right. of people's minds uh, equals romance. Even exactly, she wanted the spaceship to make sure that you knew what you were getting. Yes, um, sure. they, are, they look kind of they look they look a little romance the covers, but there definitely are spaceships on the cover. Correct. Speaking there, of, there is a Twitter account that I follow, and I think nobody else does, called uh, Techno Thriller Heaven. <laughs> and it just posts covers of 90s, like late 80s and, and 90s techno thrillers, right? So there's a submarine mm-hmm. on the cover. There's it's a black on the cover. Yeah. Black nowadays, it's always – nowadays, there's often – it's uh, thrillers are – I mean, this is techno and action thrillers. They are large, mm-hmm. very large sans fonts, and, uh, the, and there's often the capital on the cover, and if mm-hmm. it's a legal thriller, there's some kind of, of – there's usually some kind of uh, – uh, God is the thing on the cover, mm-hmm. or sometimes a gavel, or but it's a, but a lot of these thrillers have um, all have the capital on the cover, often in crosshairs and so on. It's, <laughs> it's almost like a, yeah, sometimes you think like okay, have I actually, uh, and the, the women eat thrillers. Uh, also, they're called psychological thrillers, but I call them women thrillers because they're usually domestic stuff about women being terrified of their husbands being murderers and so on. They um. Either, they also have a lot of names, names like wife or the other wife. Yeah, yeah, wife, wife is also on there, but and they have, it's uh, to indicate they, they often have suburban houses on those covers or women running away in the dark. That's also very popular. Yeah, I <laughs> but think they're running away it, from the. It's cover, the same kind of signaling, camera. but it's done through titles even more so because yeah. the art is so shitty. I think that that's yeah, really the art what is it is. Really bad right now. It's it's. Yeah. Um, 
there are very few hard case crime really has good art, but very few others do. Yeah, um, it's funny. Uh, I got uh, there's a guy named J Manfred Weichel. I don't I don't know how to pronounce his last name. W e i c h s e l. Um, and he he obviously knows I like good art. Um, and he says, "You want to see you want to see my next cover?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> And so he says, it's a secret. And so he sent me the cover and I'm like, yeah, that's really good. Um, and, uh, he says, yeah, you know, we've had a little back and forth about what, why his covers are the way they are. And he was saying, yeah, I, I want people to know, I want people to say, why is that happening on the cover of my book? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Of course, it's also good if the scene on the cover actually is in the book, which um, yes. actually yes. was quite common in the past and it no longer is. I mean, um, especially since we're going to be talking about a Robert E. Howard story with, uh, which got the cover of Weird Tales, the scene is in the book, even though it's a naked woman dancing with snakes. Yep. Snakes drawn by it Margaret absolutely Brandes, is. I think that scene only exists. All the Brandes scenes are actually in the story. <laughs> that scene them. exists to be on the cover, therefore you had to have it in the book. And that's uh, shapes the story a little bit, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, it's kind of obvious that uh, that Howard and also even more successful Seabury Quinn obviously tried to get the cover by sneaking naked women into their stories. Yeah. They knew what <laughs> and also Brundage other sometimes well, failed and ones. they knew what Farnsworth liked, and they wrote to yeah. that. Yeah, they they wrote to cover basically. Yeah, but uh, there's those, a bonus. The, you covers got the, cover done, got the covers were done later. As in interviews, Margaret Brandel who said that they um, that they that she actually read the stories and then she sent Francis right a few suggestions and she always wanted the one with a naked woman. <laughs> ah, sounds right to me. <laughs> That's also, for example, why um, with a with a which shall be born the Conan story, which has a crucifixion scene. Well, I was thinking that might Almost be that everybody illustrates the crucifixion scene because it's so so yeah. so, so, so cool, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only Margaret Brandt and Franz was right. Insisted on having a scene of the the, the good and the evil twin, be the twin attacking each other. <laughs> I'm sending to the group the image. This show won't be out for six months, so the book will be out by then. Um, uh, that's the cover that he sent. Tales to make you vomit. Savage yeah. headquarters. A Manfred points. Weichsel? I don't uh, I would pronounce him Weichsel, but I'm not sure if he actually pronounces himself. I don't know. Himself. Um, but don't you can see there's a horror host there, uh, the librarian, right? <laughs> um, so this is uh, this is much like an EC cover. And then you see uh, it, the title uh, of this particular book is Savage Headhunters. I guess Tales to Make You Vomit is the series. Um, I believe these are like, you know, hot on ebooks rather than physical copies, but I'm not sure. Um, and then you got a bunch of white dudes sitting around uh, a, a pot boiling <laughs> with uh, heads in it, right? And and there's a lady photographer taking a group shot. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, okay. it makes I, you say, I, I why is this happening? When I should, if I should buy this one, I immediately know I'll get horror. It's probably going to be kind of yes. gross. I'm going to, it's going to be cannibalism. And it tells you in the title, <laughs> Tales to Make You Vomit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then so, someone, um, so someone who's a little bit soft-hearted is unlikely to, to take this. Uh, to or weak-stomached. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it happens. So. I was... Um, um, the, the first Sin City movie. I was in the theater to watch it, and the theater was uh, very empty. 
and two elderly ladies came in and oh, they no. absolutely, it was also it was a theater in a part of town which is uh, which has this kind of educated bourgeoisie upper class uh, reputation still still is this way except that now they always used to vote conservative now they all vote green but it's still the same and same the greens are pretty conservative so, <laughs> yeah now they're conservative the green conservatives but at these two elderly ladies and they were, were well dressed uh, fur coat and so came in and said okay those are not the people who are going to watch Sin city and uh, and I think after the, the very first scene where things Clive Owen or someone, but he abruptly he seduces and abruptly shoots a woman, woman, and uh, and the woman were like, ah, and then they walked out. I think they actually mm. were they accidentally walked into the wrong movie for some reason. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, Sin City was always it was it was uh, it was uh, the marketing signaled uh, perhaps not exactly what it was, but at least that it would be no, in the wild. No, they screwed up. It wasn't. It was. Wasn't. City did a very good job of letting you know what yes. you were in for. All yeah. the trailers yeah. for that movie. Yeah. I, I I'm not a fan of that movie. I I don't. Yeah. I, I I should be based on if you described it. I should be interested in it. I do, I don't think. And you said the first Sin City movie was there more than one. There was, yeah, there was a second, was a second one. one. There was a second Which, despite having a naked Green in it, is not very good. Okay, well, no, it's not. It's, yeah. it's not as good as the first by any. Yeah. Story. Also, um, it was Gondel Theater. Gondel is an art house theater, but um, it was. But since City was on the borderline between, it wasn't actually an art house film, but it was no. the directors were arty people and so on. So it and also sometimes it was stylish. Movies, for example, uh, if you wanted to see anime movies or. Um, or some kind of, or any kind of alien movies, movies, so something like Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you had to go to the art house theaters because the regular, the regular multiplexes did not play those movies, movies, which was also always a weird experience because, <laughs> because obviously those weren't movies for the regular art house audience, but it was the only place where you could see them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So who yeah. wants to do a which shall be born after this one? I assume nobody's says i'm done with this terrible writer robert e howard um i know that that is uh, i'm always up for, for more howard and i like i mean okay which shall be born is a bit of a strange one but i i like it yeah I it has a nice crucifixion I scene <laughs> i think it's one of the weaker conan stories yeah, yeah it's there not are no bad conan stories. Uh, not by not by howard <laughs> not by howard no Sorry. I yeah. mean, uh, it has a crucifixion scene, which is one of the most iconic scenes. Uh, just pity about the rest of the story. <laughs> well, that would be yeah. uh, for the podcast. The next, like, the bit, the bit where the the chieftain is like, "All right, Conan, you're going to do what I tell you now." And he's like, "Yeah, no, I've taken over your entire tribe because you're a jerk." Oh yeah, that is also great. <laughs> everyone likes me better. You should run now. It's one of the most badass things Tony has ever done. So the next available slot would be the 26th of March. Does that work for everybody? And I want Connor to unmute himself to let me know if that, because he's the hardest to get, I think. Yeah, well, I'm going to be, um, that's going to be tough for me as well, because I'm going to be, I'm going to be really transient in my living <laughs> style until, in my lifestyle until about May. How this, is well, life in, uh, in Castle anyway, or where are you at the moment? It's good. I'm I'm in Castle right now. Yeah, um, I mean, I until, like Castle. It's beautiful. It's really nice, mm-hmm. and the snow is really nice right now as well. Um, but I'm about to, at the end of February, I'm going to be changing what I'm doing, and I'm going to start volunteering on a few farms. Wow. So I'm doing mm-hmm. first ones in uh, the Black Forest, 
Oh yeah, then, that's a bit away. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a bit away. I think it'll be a bit chilly. It'll be a bit but colder. It's, uh, lo- but it's really lovely. The Black Forest is lovely scenery. I'm hoping that uh, and, it's uh, going to be nice famous. in the spring. I'm hoping and the spring also, will come um, early. It's really easy to cross over from the Black Forest into uh, into France if you want to, or mm-hmm. into uh, into Switzerland. Yeah, well, um, I'll be in. It's in um, the area is Baden-Württemberg, so yeah, it's I'll Baden-Württemberg. Be, yeah, but it's also in Bavaria. It kind of the Black Forest is also a bit in Bavaria, isn't it? Or uh, uh, no, I really? don't think so. But I think you're, you're getting a mix with 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 uh, Bayerischer Wald, which is not uh, with the Schwarzwald. Is Baden-Württemberg? Ah. Okay. Schwarzwald is Baden-Württemberg and stretches uh, down the side <laughs> side along the. Basically, sort of along the French border. The area across the French border is called Vogues uh, or whatever the French name is. I only know the German name. My um, great grandfather, he was from the he was from the Alsace region of uh, region of what is now France and was Germany for a while. It's actually it's it's the old kingdom of Lorraine and uh, Lorraine oh, and. Yeah. Uh, which is also yeah. why I always get angry with ah Germany stole Alsace and Lorraine from. For France, they said they stole part of it, which was French-speaking, but large parts are were German-speaking, and the French were not particularly nice to the German speakers. Because whose fault it was, and my great-grandfather came from that area. But it's further north, it's um, adjacent to Saarland. Hmm. I'm hoping it's going to, well, I'm hoping it's going to be a really nice area. Do you think spring is going to come a bit early this year? <laughs> my fingers are crossed. But, uh... uh uh, Black, well, Black Forest is kind of notorious for not so, but Freiburg, which is in the Black Forest. Freiburg ah. is one of the warmest, warmest uh, cities in, uh, cities in Europe, in Germany. Also, it's further south, so it's, uh, so there's a chance of it getting, uh, getting warm earlier. Okay. I might have to take a this has trip been there. kind of weird. First it was very cold, then it was suddenly three weeks very, very mild and warm. For December, for late December, early January, and now it's cold again. Yeah. So, I mean, um, all of the plants started to throw out new buds here, and oh. then and now they've all been yeah, <laughs> killed off in the snow. Um, okay, but for the um, for my availability mm-hmm. in March, um, I'm not sure I will have a place to be able to sit down that's quiet and do that. But uh, I could do it in May if you're willing to hold off that long. Uh, you mean? In March or May? Because you, May. I think you reversed it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're I'm right. Sorry. No, in, no, I, I reversed it. <laughs> so March, I'm putting I'm May. Uh, yeah. It's on the top of the list of things that haven't been scheduled yet. It says May for Connor, and then I assume everybody wants to be in on that. Is that correct? Yes, I can just copy yes, and paste. Yep. All right. Good. All right. There we go. It's probably a little too uh, a little too little space between, anyways. Um, cause it's not like we have Robert E. Howard back to back to back. The Black Stranger wasn't that long ago. We are not the Chromecast. <laughs> no, we're not. And, uh, yeah. They're back to Howard. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Yeah, they just cycled back to Conan after <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> dude, sad. dude, I stopped listening because they got too much into gaming, <laughs> got their stuff. And I'm like, no, I turn to you because you're doing shows on Robert E. Howard stories. Um, so... Yeah, um, let's just uh, go through uh, um, any other business we have. Um, I did not send Connor's video to everybody, so Connor, why don't you tell everybody about it? Because uh, in six months it should be 
fit out and finished and everybody will be talking about it, right? Oh, it will be for sure. I mean, I'm probably going to put it out in the next few days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, finished an analysis I was doing on Robert E. Howard's writing style and it's a, it's a data analysis, not, um, the, like literary. a literary analysis, but I found a few interesting things. I'm just going to throw a link to the video. It's not published yet, but anybody who has this link can watch it. Um, and, uh, yeah. So anyway, if if you're interested, check it out. Um, that's and, um, and it goes to your website where people can play with the info on it, right? Yes. Yeah. So the data set is available, and so and so anybody can take a look. Um, and you can also I've created a dashboard, which basically it will you can select a particular word and it will plot that word across Howard's entire um, bibli- uh, bibliography. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Mm. His entire group, like, works, all of the short stories that we know that exist. So, um, yeah, anyway. Oh, wow. That's um, the big update. I, de- I wanted to ask you if you put Almuric in there. Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh... <laughs> there are some. I, I put in also a lot of stories that are not technically in the pub, that are not in the public domain. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, I'm breaking them it into doesn't words. Matter. So it doesn't matter. There's no yeah. Also, um. I mean, Amuric is, we don't, but, uh, for a lot of the ones which were later finished by uh, De Camp, Lynn Carter, and so on, uh, we do have the, the Howard, uh, the Howard portions survive in, in, manuscripts survive in many cases, so we have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, basically, I, I was saying, why isn't Thuse one of the most used words? <laughs> and why not Scarlet? Uh, obviously, Scarlet's used in titles, but I think, I mean, crimson is probably more used in the text, I guess. Crimson's fairly frequently used, um, and the I'd same. Like to see dusky, dusky, dusky might be one, That's a good one as well. See, the thing is, with some of these words, I had my own preconceptions about mm-hmm. what would be the most common words, mm-hmm. and I was thwarted in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that is is because he uses these words really like flavoring. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't want to overuse them, right? Yeah. yeah. So And a lot of the words, like, for instance, the word supple, which I thought would be mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah, it's not in this yeah. one, right? It's yeah, flexible it's, um, is what we get instead of supple. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't start using it until actually about really halfway through um, his works, right? He About 1932 was when he started use, started using that word. And then he uses it fairly frequently, but not as much as you'd think. So, um, um, as a quick, as a quick, uh, you know, look at the list, people. Uh, I went through Connor's video earlier this week, um, and this is the Twitter thread I made. Uh, these are not in order of popularity; these are just the most popular words, right? So, uh, the first, the first set of six words he put on were. Dark, dead, wild, strange, mad, grim. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> these are these are what I think are sort of the um, in terms of selecting adjectives. These are the most uh, common ones that are sort of unique, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, there are some adjectives you would see in every from every author, like right. big, right, um, or long, or something like that. But mm-hmm. these are the ones which are pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to also mention that uh, the the dashed words, beast-like, hawk-like, I thought that was really good insight that you, yeah. you're pointing to. But also, I think that that's a trend in writing that has gone away. 
So he's not, you know, the only one doing it. It's that mostly we don't read stuff from the 30s and the 20s. And that's why we don't see it that much. Because if you, if, you know, what I do, and I, I think, uh, Alex can back me up on this. Um, when I go through the art inside stories and I caption it based on the text that's describing the image, dashed adjectives are super popular. And that's not the case with regular writing anymore. So beast-like, hawk-like, I'm surprised we don't have more panzer-like, because um, it seems in every single story, Conan is described as panzerish or panzer-like or something like that. But this is all of Howard's writing. And so Conan is only a little bit of it, right? Yeah, only Conan is a panther. So if we... Conan is usually a wolf or something. Yes, but also... But but like um, there's a one of the essays I read for this podcast today, um, it talked about the dead remember a story by Howard that's a, a western, uh, mm-hmm. but it's also written from the perspective of an illiterate, basically illiterate cowboy. He he has his basic words right. So, and because it's an epistolary, nobody and you know the other characters who are writing in this story are all like witnesses to a crime. None of them are literature professors or Robert E. Howard. Right? He dumbs down the text to match the characters in it. And so people think, oh, that's not a very good story. <laughs> because That's what what somebody said about the story. It's a good <laughs> story. The plot is immaculate. It's really well done. Very interesting. Uh, we did a reading short and deep on it, so I studied up on it. Um, and, and yet, it doesn't use the amazing vocabulary that you expect from Robert E. Howard stories in Cull and Solomon Kane and, and that sort of thing. And so depending you know if you're doing a gent from bear creek it's he's not a smart character right and since uh he's a lot of the story you're not going to get these amazing vocabulary so if you break if you break your expectations down by the character or the genre it will probably yield more more particular results right you also probably wouldn't find would find different. Um, I haven't read a lot of them, but the Steve Costigan stories, for example, mm-hmm. the boxing stories, yeah. are also because uh, Steve Costigan is also not a very smart person. Yeah, but you would get mighty, right? Yeah, you get mighty, of course. And and all the the vocabulary for ver- verbs like fling and toss, right? Uh, rather than th- throw being the first one you think of, right? But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And, um, this is kind of, this is how I, I teach students to write is I give them vocabulary and then I say, now write me a story. Um, and I had six vocabulary words. Dark, dead, wild, strange, mad, grim are not high level vocabulary words, but they are evocative, right? Um, so you could, you could write a story based on just those six and then the next six and then, and they get pretty weird, Actually, like listen. Uh, it almost suggests as if uh, Robert E. Howard didn't just invent sword and sorcery; he also invented grimdark fantasy. <laughs> and of course, grimdark well, fantasy, from that from first grimdark six, fantasy today is uh, is an offshoot, offshoot of sword and sorcery. Mm. Mm-hmm. His vo- his vocabulary definitely leans towards, yeah. like in terms of fantasy. If you looked at just the adjectives, it's melancholic. Yeah, they're fairly negative, and well, I guess. Not really negative, but they're more 
horror themed, mm-hmm. even in fantasy stories. Um, but also I just wanted to say I am, I have, um, seven about around about 7 PM is when I need what to head off for a little bit after. Yeah, it's 530. So I have about an hour and a half. 530. All right. Let's get started. Then. It would be good minutes. if I could leave too, because, um, I have to, because, um, I have, haven't had dinner yet and so on and so on. And so, okay, so I will probably uh, head off at 7 as well. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Yeah, Paul, we have to make the list. Oh, okay. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also, um, uh, I don't know. But I'm, I'm the last, I think. But uh, All right, let's look yeah, at it. Yes, you're, you're the last currently, Cora. Uh, so it'd be me. So it'd be Jesse, Paul, Connor, mm-hmm. Connor Cora, I think. Connor Cora, Alex. Oh. No, no, oh, Alex. Really? Okay. Call, call, it doesn't matter. Jesse Paul. Jesse Paul. Jesse Paul, Connor, Alex, Cora. There we go. You ready? Okay. Everybody ready. got a recorder going? Who has a recorder? Here we I have go. one. Excellent. Yeah. All right, here we go. Oh, uh, wait. <laughs> there we go.